and then, with the rise of Nazism, sort of coaxed the American people who did not want to go into another war mm. towards building up its armaments wow. so that it would be able to, like, if the time came, like, go and help fight fascism in the Second World War. And when Pearl Harbor happened, that was, like, the reason to go. He led them through both those things, um, died in office just before the end of the Second World War. He served three full terms and was voted in for a fourth term. Since then, like, up until then, everyone followed a two-term sort of convention because of George Washington. And I think since then, they probably changed it so you can't do longer, but that's how necessary he was. Like, in a way, America's democracy almost led towards a semi-dictatorship by voting him in that many times because they needed that leadership. Mm. And, um, and on top of all that, he got polio when he was in his 30s. Whoa. So he'd had this political career that was on the up and up. He'd been a Navy, um, Secretary of the Navy, and had been in the running as Vice President in one election, which they lost. And then in his 30s, he gets polio, and he can never walk properly again. Like, he basically gets around a wheelchair, and for public appearances, he had these metal braces on his legs, and he could kind of lever himself up so that his legs are, like, straight. And with someone's help, kind of get up, like... And, and like, you see in any footage, he's always he's got... He's holding the lectern. He's holding the le- lectern. Wow. Or he's holding onto somebody else. Wow. And, um... And so he came out of, yeah, the whole polio thing and came back to politics and became, like, realised his sort of dream of leading the country, but then did it at a time where they needed a leader more than any, a, a great leader more than any. And something about that experience of his meant that he had some compassion or empathy that he didn't have before because he came from a pretty well-to-do right. upbringing. He could have easily gone into conservative politics. Um, but he didn't. And I just think that's an amazing, it's an amazing story. Mm. And, and, and even the fact that he could, like the media sort of were complicit in not like showing that vulnerability, like people weren't allowed to film him getting from a car to the, um, to the the big function. Um, but they kind of, you know, that could never happen today. Like that level of um, sort of, I guess, silent agreement. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I find him a pretty fascinating character. Like he was, his, his shortcomings were on civil rights. Um, like at that time, he didn't, he wasn't great on, um, yeah, civil rights. But that's where Eleanor, his wife steps in because she was totally led on that front and mm. anyway the series i'd say if you were to go there like this from maybe episode three onwards it's his story and then it's her story after he died and she is involved in the setting up of the united nations and stuff anyway i didn't know anything about any of that history and i do find that inspiring that story sounds I, like i don't know how i use it but yeah. it's um i think it's just i think i like engaging with that stuff because if i ever i'm feeling down about like my own shit or you know what am I going to do or blah 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 like hearing stories like that just 
puts into perspective like what's what actually is hard <laughs> and, and what's and what people have done and it's a fascinating story too because the whole depression thing is like there's this whole story of how people work together on a national level to get out of the shit and it's something that doesn't ring true to us now because we've had it so good that community it's more about the individual than it is about the community and it makes me wonder if you need you see it with climate change it's like things have to get that bad before people do something about it and mm-hmm. it does make me wonder if sometimes you need those calamities or catastrophes to sort of bring the community out in people and I mean that happens in natural disasters in a way doesn't it yeah I mean I don't think it's happening with art like I don't think our ongoing precarity and lack of resources is helping no no I think what people do is that they survive in whatever way they can and that either means adapting to fulfill funding requirements or retraining and putting their vast skill and towards something that will pay them yeah but it sounds like what you're talking about which is super inspiring is leadership with vision yes yeah yeah definitely i don't know how to do that outside of the field of my expertise of making Mm. work and leading Mm. a team to make that yeah yeah um but when i am in those processes i feel like i have value because mm. mm. I feel like that is something that I can offer, even if it's a soft leadership of taking responsibility for interpreting what the director may mean mm. and then trying to deliver that. Mm. Yeah. There's, yeah. But I don't know where we get those leaders from or how we bring them to the fore mm. or support them. I know. It's, I mean, I just saw someone posted something about Jacinta Ardern yesterday, listening, listing her government's achievements in like under two minutes or something that since they've been as like you know in the context of the disastrous politics globally like she's pretty impressive mm. as a leader um so i don't know i guess they yeah how do you bring those to the fore or how do we like how do we encourage people like that to step forward or how do we cultivate that that's that is actually a good question um yeah because i do think there must be something in our whether it's our culture or our um i don't know our society that or our media that stops those people from taking up the charge or stepping into the arena or mm-hmm. I mean there's I actually I don't that's not something I'm wondering about it's clear there's a lot of reasons why if you were <laughs> you know if you were a good person capable with good communication skills and and ideas why you would not go there because it's ruthless and it's yeah, and you and could probably make and more money with less stress. There's that as well. And, um, yeah, it comes back to that sort of thing that I've heard said a few times of, like, 
you know, think about the type of person that would actually go into politics. It's like, yeah, they're going to tend to be fairly... Self-important. Self-important, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But, you know, there are, there are good people who still seem, people who seem to get in, into it for the right reasons. It's just, um, I sometimes find that, uh, there's a siphoning, no, it's the wrong screening process. When I've worked on amateur productions to professional productions, there's a screening process of self-importance and that. Sometimes directors get through, but not very often the cast, dancers or collaborators or whatever, get through many professional re-engagements if they're too self-important. And there's like that's why it's that's my theory on why it's such a joy that you can come together with a team that you haven't met and make something um, because. We are living in this uh, lucky enclave Mm. whereby the people that are less socially adapted to whatever we think is the way to act have been screened out either by privilege or finance or Mm. family or whatever. Mm. Mm. Well, no solutions. (laughs) Um... No solutions. But should we keep making work for people to see? Um, they say that whatever you can do, you should do it as best as you can. They, they say that? They say that. It's some long quote about this, the street sweeper. Like it's not a prestigious position, but you make it valuable by doing it the best that you can. And then all of society is better because of that. I don't, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm on board, but... There's something in that, I think, because I do feel like... Um, There's also a Genghis Khan quote. Yeah. It's like, for want, of a, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a horse, like, the rider was lost. For want of a, a horse, the battle was lost. For, you know, like, it goes on until because of that nail being neglected, yep. the empire falls. Yep. Yeah, look, there's something in tearing down both, the empire. Both, both, well, <laughs> there's something in both of those things about um, people feeling, on an individual level, like what they're doing has value, yes, and that it's worth doing, yes. and then just trying to focus on that and do that, and not getting so worried about um, the latest episode of The Bachelor. Or the block, or I think they need to be together for two years to win the prize money. Oh, really? That's there's, what I heard. Like that. That's what I heard when I was getting buying watermelon the other day. Um, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that. Like everyone needs their entertainment. Yes. But um, but it does feel like we live in a very di- distracted time in terms of people looking away from where they are and what's in front of them to things that aren't where they are and aren't in front of them and feeling, um, like always feeling like they need to be somewhere else 
or they want to be somewhere else or they want to get to somewhere else. Um, whether that be an ambitious sort of thing in terms of acquiring mm. achievements and materials through life or whether that be like caught up with following whatever's on Facebook or Instagram. Or but it could just be the fear of your time ticking away as well, like that rush, um, which, which you have to face if you become a godless society. <laughs> uh, you don't have eternity. But what you, what's your relationship with ambition? Um, ambition. I'm not a very ambitious person. <laughs> I think that's my relationship with ambition. Um, but you were, or you never no, have been? No, I don't been, think I ever have been. You're happy to not be ambitious? I don't know if I'm happy about it. Like, I don't. I've always been very suspicious of it, um, and I've. I think I've always second-guessed myself too much mm. to be truly ambitious. Um, and or, or I, I don't know, can reason myself out of... I don't know. I, I, That's being in the centre. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I, I definitely, when it comes to reason, I, I think I'm pretty good at being able to see both sides of an argument. Mm. Um Claire thinks I would be a very, um, like she thinks I'm, I'm pretty fair, um, but um, ambitious, no, I don't, I don't think so, and maybe I'll find that, maybe that's what needs to come next for me, <laughs> mm. you know, maybe I have, like, because the things I admire in, in some of the people I've been reading about, like, ambition plays a role. Yes. Uh, in yeah, and in in how they get to where they get to, and it plays a role in um, them getting to those positions where they can really influence things. Mm. But it also plays a role in uh, how much they want to influence things. Right, and yes. and there is a big self-importance there, yes. which I don't have, and I don't. Like don't have in the same way, I guess. But um, but it seems like it is necessary. Yeah. In some way, shape, or form, for a person who's going to lead to to have that. But um. But that's leadership too. Like I'm not necessarily interested in leading. Um, I just feel like we need. And I don't think like I I want to see better leadership. And I right. think a lot of people do. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes, and I think it's so. This thing happens with music where there's a loudness wars because it's easy for us to mistake louder music for music that impacts us more. Just because it's louder, we're like, oh, it's really pumping, but actually, it's not a good beat yep. or whatever. It's not a good track, but it's louder, so it gets more impact. And I think the same thing can happen with leaders. Yeah. That we can mistake louder leaders yep. for leaders that are more insightful or less uh, shaky or something. And I, I think that's what we're living through at the moment. Yeah, I think there's truth to that. Um, I also think, just to get back to something I mentioned, that I think it, the thing of distraction, yeah, I right. think, is is prevalent now more so than ever. Yeah. I just, th I often think about like, 
you know, all the problems that the world has gone through in the course of history, um, but even to think about uh, all the things that have been achieved as well. Like, so many things were done and achieved because people had nothing better to do. You know, yeah. they were bored, so they yeah. had to discover an interest in, yeah. I don't know, geology or, yeah, or astronomy yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah. And and so you get people following these interests and paths yeah. to a level of expertise that means there is great achievement in those areas. Yeah, but that's not, um, um, no, industries can't monetize that quite so uh, pervasively. Like you can monetize a hobby to the point where you can sell equipment for it. Yeah. Even gold rush, like you want to be the person selling the shovels, not the person going looking for gold. Mm. But there's a limit to that, and that's why then people start up magazines based around hobbies because then at least you get a subscription income. But to monetize somebody's attention, I don't think we've seen that to the, the that's extent. That's right. That's the scary part, yeah. isn't it? It's, it's so much about attention and distraction and how you were never bored that's the thing that gets me is like realizing that being bored is a very useful thing because it's in that space that you have to be creative you have to find something you have to find something to do and I look at like my kids generation and they're just never bored because they've always got Mm. There's the phone. Mm. There's like, like even with te- television, right? So television, for me growing up, I guess maybe for you too. I don't know. I feel TV was like as you know distracted or time wasty as you could get. Yes. Yeah. Um, That's why we weren't allowed to watch it. You weren't allowed to watch it all. Wow. Yeah, we had a limit. It was like I think we could watch an hour okay. after school, but that only was because there was work to be done. Right. Yeah. Um, but I guess that's my thing is there's always work to be done. Yes. Um, but how much are we distracted from doing it? Yeah. Like, and, but, and it's not just kids and young people growing up like that. It's no. everyone, yeah. every single fucking person who has a phone. But, but also is, the block is, is living in a, the right? block. <laughs> like we, that like renovation as distraction. Yeah. Market timing as distraction. Like, these are. And these are like a higher brow form of distraction. But once but they become you the think, zeitgeist... Yeah, you're essentially, you've turned like this thing of building a place into a consumerist... It's, it's, on, it's a consumer activity. By, by privatising as many things as possible, yep. then... Because you don't walk away from going to a football match with more money than you entered with, but no. you could walk away from a renovation with more money than you entered with. Yeah. So that, that as distraction from even like something as in, like it sounds dumb to say, but family time. There used to be this thing called the teddy bears picnic, mm. where people would just take their kids and their kids would, could bring their toys, and there would be a picnic in the park. And it was like mm. sounds so naff mm. Mm. because now you can do much bigger, crazier, more expensive shit with, like, pyrotechnics. and mm. Yeah. But the distraction is real, and I wonder if we're adding to it. 
as well. As artists. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you do question that. Like, <laughs> do we really need... Well, yeah, when I, especially when I thought about doing more with Small Town and doing stuff online, it's like you, you always have that question of, like, there are so many people fucking trying to do, you know, comedy and funny shit and creating content. Do I really need to mm. add more to that? Mm. And what's that doing for people? Like, people are spending their time watching all this shit. Is that really useful blah blah blah. there's that question too um i just think in terms of getting back to this leadership question Mm. and this vacuum and um is uh i I just sometimes get overwhelmed by the thought of like like i'm pretty careful with my phone in terms of using it i don't use social media very much like i'll if I make a show, I might, I'll put something on it, Facebook about it. That's about all I post for. And then I might see, like, I'm pretty careful about, I'm aware of it being a distraction. So I'm, but, but I still know the power it has over me and I still know the, 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 the way it can distract me. And then I think about like, however many billion people have phones. Yeah. I think it's up to something like a third of the internet is now people from India and China. Right. So I think about that and it's overwhelming to think about all those people having their attention. We're back to squandering. Yes, their attention and their concentration. Okay. Like being just pulled in all of these directions. It's like... So we squandered our economic prosperity and now we're squandering our incredible rise out of baseline poverty. Where we've got time. We have time and we have access to education and less people than ever are running away from tigers and shivering in hunger over the night. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Squander. (laughs) Fuck. Well, then we need leaders. And if I was to make a, a large... Like, I'll draw a long bow again. There's something about sci-fi illustrating the direction that science could take and I think the, I think my favourite form of sci-fi is quite often like female novel writers who are like this is the way that society could be shaped mm. and then those are the imaginations that then people once the mm. idea has been imagined then people can work through the logistics mm. and keep what they can uh I don't think warnings ever work, obviously, because 1984. Mm. But I think alternative visions Mm. are what I'm in the game for. Mm. So, like, epiphanies are the the currency that I Mm. revel within. Yeah, right. Insights are the inspiration. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, the <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's a whole other part of this conversation that I don't really. Uh, you know, there's this whole other look at the systems and the structures that we live within, just being completely 
tired and old and done with and the idea that they do need to just collapse and out of that needs to come something else but that's that's too big for me to like properly contemplate yeah it gets too um yeah i don't know it was funny did you see this uh thing about lunig in the last few weeks lunig cartoon that kind of caused a big online backlash and Looney had to come out and sort of defend himself and wow I missed it and then I sort of caught caught it after it happened and he's um he's like a darling of the left Looney yeah well so what happened was um so so it was a cartoon I'm gonna look at yeah, it yeah look it up um let me go to the toilet okay pause keep recording so back to recording Talking so I'm Looney. looking at the cartoon and there's a parent pushing a pram I'm looking at a phone and the baby has fallen out onto the ground. But it's and not just the parent, it's a mum. Yes, because the first line of the poem above it said, Mummy was busy on Instagram when beautiful Bobby fell out of the pram and lay on the path unseen and alone, wishing that he was loved like a phone. Not her phone, a phone. So he could have easily said, parent was busy. Yes. Um, but I don't think he needed to say that because I think... He's also acknowledging that the primary caregiver in the early stages, at the very least, if not mostly, is the mum. Mm. And the people who are left alone are the people who are most vulnerable to attention-grabbing algorithms. And, mm. like, he's making many, many points, but I support him. Well, well here's what... what I, look, the way I took it was this. I, I thought he was making a good point about the whole phone distraction and, thing and attention economy thing yes but all he had to do and but then i also understand that it's been read as an attack on an, the mother. an attack on mums who like assuming uh that when you see a mum on her phone while she's pushing a pram yeah that that's what she's doing all the time and she's not spending all of this other time that's dedicated labor and attention to this to their child like so yeah, I, yeah. I feel like I feel like one thing he could have done was put a dad in the picture too. So it's two parents walking together, right? And they're both, both on, on their, their phones. phones. And then maybe also making the kids sort of lying on the ground. It's a bit dramatic as well. I mean, I guess it's a cartoon, so you've got to make your point somehow. But um, he didn't even need the poem, could, he, in my opinion, of looking at the visual. Yeah. Maybe the visual tells the story. That's true, actually. Maybe he sh without the poem, that would be interesting. Or poem, both parents um, and uh, kids still in the st stroller would kind of make it. Uh, but then he's yeah, I don't know. I thought it was interesting anyway because the backlash was like extreme, mm. and I didn't follow it closely. But there was this one article which was like written by someone, I guess, our age, and it was totally an attack on him as a boomer, as a baby boomer. Uh. And it focused all on that, and it did not, like, focus at all on the... Um, on the, the point about the phones and what they do to our attention. And Yeah, right. I don't know, it rang true for me because... Because you dropped layers out of the pram. <laughs> well... Well, I know what it's like. Like we, we, I spend a lot of time 
with him when he was young and mm. um, Claire was working more than I was. Uh, but we shared, shared all that stuff. Um, but we've reflected a few times, like we got phones when he was in kindergarten, just that's the timeline for okay. us on the technology front. And I've, we've commented a few times, like when you see someone mm. in the, you know, see a dad in the playground pushing his kid on the swing and he's on his phone, mm. I get it. Like, you, you know, that's, yeah, you've put in you, enough you, you labor, get, you need a break. And, and it can be boring. Yeah. Like the cliche I always share or with lonely. parents or, or lonely yeah. as well. Um, but I'm so glad I didn't have that because it meant I had to find a way to engage or find it interesting, you know? So, but also, and, and, and even if I didn't, yeah, my attention was at least still on, yeah, on, yeah, on, yeah. on him and, and, but you're like professional level, obviously. Like you're employable level, your skills with spending time with children. I guess so. I did have that issue in childcare. <laughs> yeah. And so I did enjoy a lot of the parenting yeah. stuff. And, and perhaps you're also not laden, or maybe you are, something to talk about, with the um, well, British inherited idea that the father should be distant. Because there's a lot of that as well that still goes on. Yeah. And I also think it's easier, to, potentially easier to be a stay-at-home dad than a stay-at-home mum because it's not the norm. Like, you know, like you can feel really invisible as a stay-at-home mum, I imagine. Yeah. yeah. In, a way that, that? in a way that... Um, you stuck out, is what you're saying. So you weren't invisible. Possibly, yeah. Mm. Don't get me wrong. It's it's, I, I, it, it's isolating and, and okay. like it can be a, a sort of what I always say. The cliche that rings true for me, but it is a cliche, um, is like I know I often say this to when I see parents or my friends have had kids or something, and they're going through that like young stage of mm. long. I say the days, the days are. What is it? The days go long or slow. Anyway. The, the days go slowly, but mm. the years go quick. Mm. And it's something like that anyway. It's poetic. And, and for, for child raising, it's so true. Wow. Because there are times when you're like, um, you know, it can seem like eternity running around after a little person when you've got to give them all of your attention. Um, but then you look around and, like, they're 14 and... You look at photos, and your your heart melts oh. when you see these this little person, and you remember this this time that was like your everything, like was your eternity. Mm. Is so quickly, Done. so quickly it goes, and it's changed, and that person's with you, and they're growing and they're changing. But it is such a strange experience, because um, it's hard not to be to to miss that all those different stages of them growing up, yeah. like. Yeah. I don't know why I brought that up, that learning thing. Maybe it was just popped into my head. But no, about the distraction. It's yeah. about the distraction stuff. And that, that debate. And anyway, this article was like just having a go at him for being a baby boomer. <laughs> and, and, and it was kind of made some good points, but it kind of did not address at all the idea of, you know, should we be like questioning how we're using this technology or the way that it's interacting with our lives? And it, it didn't kind of yeah, look I, at that at all. It was all about I'm how he was having a go at um, 
young mothers and how he didn't understand that. And, mm. you know, that stuff's totally valid as well. Yeah, I don't think but it's of all the a, people in society to have a go at, mothers are probably not the people that need... De- uh, definitely not, definitely not. <laughs> and, but I would, and that was the point of the backlash, which is... Yeah. But I do think it also misses something in that... Yeah. Um, it's it's not just mothers, obviously. It's it's everybody Everyone. at that point. That, like, the kids should be on a phone as well. Yeah, you know, on, absolutely. On the ground. The kids, and that's, that's the reality, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, like, I would be more... I would go further and say it's not even uh, imperative to reconsider how we use it, but to how it is incentivized, how the company is incentivized to encourage us to use it. Oh, yeah. And I think the same way about poker machines, and mm. I think the same way about um, transport infrastructure. Like, when I have lived somewhere that incentivizes me differently, I operate differently. Yeah. And I don't suffer. Yeah, and it's fine. There is stuff work being done in that area, isn't there? Mm. Of like apps or even people talking to not showing followers. Try, trying to work with Facebook and Instagram and stuff to like make the the way the apps work not to be about buying our attention or, yeah. or turning our attention into to advertising yeah. money, but actually looking at more ethical ways to um, design the apps or the technology so that we're incentivized to use it in a more, um, well, in a less harmful way, I guess. I think uh, one of the fallouts is that it's easy to feel like you, you, like you pass someone on the street and it's easy to feel like you live in a completely different city than they are living in. Yeah. Because everything is um, individualized. Yeah. But then I think about ignoring each other is not a new thing. It's just about how the information can extremify. Mm. Um, and then I think about intervention, like art making as intervention. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to th- um, think along the lines of being a. Advocate's the wrong word. What am I thinking of? Like when a person has a political message and they want to make performance and get people to look at it. Anyway, the word... Yes, definitely not an activist. What I'm more interested in is inventing alternatives and throwing them up against the wall. Mm. That's actually all. I don't... And I think there needs to be what you're talking about with the three- to five-year-old range of infinite interest in play and discovery and generative interaction. Mm. I think that is... If we if we propose that artists have any role, any leadership role at all, it should be to validate that as a form of continually reflecting and refining what is this construct that we live in and exist in, which is to keep coming up with alternatives. Mm. Because I, I think... We're lacking alternatives. Mm. Yeah. Because we're not just thinking about our neighbourhood anymore, we're thinking about the entire world. Mm. Which is good, we should. But I don't know if we're ready for it yet. Well, it's overwhelming, isn't it? Yes. And I think it adds to the um, anxiety. Mm. The disempowerment. When your news feed is telling you not just what's happening in Sydney that day, but or Australia, but just constantly telling you 
everything bad that is happening in the whole world all the time. <laughs> it's like, no, yeah, no one's ready for that. No one can. No one can deal with that. No, but I guess humans will evolve. Cultures will evolve. Societies will evolve, for better and for worse, up and down. I think that's a great, great way, great way to finish. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Thank you. That was great. But you've made a lot of theatre. Um, I made some. Yeah, I don't know about a lot. <laughs> you were on a roll there, mate. You were like you were making shows and now touring. People were throwing money at you, like relatively, sort of. You don't think so? You don't think you ever got on a roll? Um, I, it was a pretty short roll, and I think it was mostly like benefiting from the young and emerging artist thing oh. that was quite a thing there for like, yeah. I don't know, five yeah. years or so, or maybe even a decade. Like, in terms of funding, there was a big focus on young and emerging okay and i feel like i was part of a generation of artists that benefited from that okay until that ran out Did, like it ran out and we aged yeah, the, yeah. there's a combination there it's like <laughs> that they stopped focusing on young and emerging which is not great for the next generation right um but then and we, we, we also young. aged so <laughs> we've got to like at some point you know work it out for yourself kind of thing or something i don't know i don't know like Okay. Um, because I've wondered if the focus shifted, if the entire agenda shifted, actually if, like, if the meritocracy shifted mm. towards a different set of criteria. What do you mean? I mean, uh, I think that there was an element of scarcity and accountability fear introduced like i think people who had money to distribute mm, felt like they could take less risk with who they supported i think that's been growing since then okay i might yeah, be wrong yeah. about that yeah, but I, like i know when there was an odds dance northern territory because yeah. that's where i grew up yeah i had signed up to go to a dance festival online late one night because i wanted to learn how to do the worm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there was no YouTube or anything like that back then. And about a week or two later, I got a call from this organization I never heard of called Oz Dance. Yeah. And uh, they said, we've got three scholarships that we can send people away down to this festival, like cover air flights and registration fees and stuff. Do you want one? And that, like, I was... I hadn't proven my interest or proven my sticking to the thing, but it was like the opportunity, it was okay to spend money on the possibility. Mm, mm, yeah. And I don't know if it's okay to spend money on possibility anymore. Yeah. Or if it's yeah, maybe that's true. I mean, it just seems like there's less, less resources. Right. Like, I mean, I know I don't want to talk about funding, like, cause it always gets back to that, but, um, there's definitely less okay. resources across the board. Okay. And I feel like, I don't know, I, I, I've been teaching the last few years uh, down at Wollongong Uni, like in the performance degree down there. Uh, like a few days a week? Yeah, or, like um, I'll either take a class for a semester or um, 
the best part of it is uh, they often give me a production. Like oh, nice. I make a show with, yeah, you know, often around ten student performance students. We've got the whole semester. Yeah. I get down three mornings a week and. We have like four hour rehearsal blocks and devise a show. So that's been like the last few years how I've kept my practice actually. It's just like been a way to keep developing ideas and mm -hmm. keep making work, but sort of in the sort of, I guess, out of sight kind of uh, tertiary context mm -hmm. where, you know, you can try it. The good thing is that I can try lots of things and uh, test lots of things um, and but the downside is no one sees it, of course. But it feels like they're little creative developments. Yeah. Um, but the thing that I find on that young emerging thing, a bit confronting with, you know, sharing what I know with these students, they'll often ask me, like, oh, I'm graduating next year. Like, what are some of the things I should be looking out for? Grants, like festivals, opportunities. Like, what did you do when you left uni kind of thing? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'll put together a bit of a list of, like, what I can see is out there. And I'm quite struck by um, how much, from, my, from what I can see anyway, how much less uh, opportunity there is for them right. as young artists yeah. starting out, graduating. Yeah. Um, for starters, there's no young and emerging artist category. Osco, which no. there used to be. Yes, you know. and there there were specific initiatives that organisations ran, like the Jump Mentorship. Yep, you did that. Yeah, did you? I, did, yeah that. I did that too. Yeah, which what that meant, what I see now is what it was doing, I didn't realise then, is that it is outsourcing the self-producing that you end up having to do as an artist um, to an organisation for, for just long enough so that you can... Yeah. Some yeah, learn a bit about that yeah. without having to do it, yeah. and also get the attention of time to make your own work. But also the mentoring relationship is obviously like to connect you to the next, the old old generation of artists. And yeah, but I don't know. Like in terms of where I, I see myself being out, like you're saying, like being on a roll with work, and they're not. Like like I feel. I like I to ease the, into the discussion. I look at the generation. <laughs> no, but it's. Uh, I like to like. I look at the generation that I sort of followed, and say my mentor was Jeff Stein. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and who did stuff with was part of Gravity Feed, amongst lots of other um, projects and pursuits, performance pursuits, and um, and like that generation of artists. I, the the support might not have been there for the young emerging when they were coming through. I don't know, but they definitely all experienced the same thing. When they get to like a certain point in their lives or careers where it's harder to keep making work for whatever reason, and yeah, right. I don't know. You don't see many people in our in the sort of contemporary performance mm. uh, dance. Um, arts community like who are like 60 70 and like still making like a couple of works a year like the, you know there doesn't mm. that longevity just doesn't seem to be there okay you got a plan for that no okay <laughs> okay good um yeah i don't know i, I think i've just 
at the moment I'm grappling with where, where I'm at and yeah, trying to make sense of the last 10 years or so. Yeah. And you know, make sense of the times when there was more happening in terms of, um, my arts career or my practice and the times when there hasn't been as much and, and, and try to understand, I don't know, like what that journey is or something or, or what, what to take from that and, and what's important about my experience through doing all that. I don't know, getting wishy-washy, but well, do you think that it's been a, that it's been linear or do you think that it's that there there is no method to the madness there's no rhyme or reason about when it's up when it's down it is it has been sporadic or do you think that there was a time where your enthusiasm or naivety or youth Mm. whatever took you through to learning and exposure and support and then there's been a tapering yeah the that sounds about right. That sounds about right for my personal experience. Yes. Um, there's definitely something there about age and experience where, um, you know, when you're young, straight out of uni, and um, a lot of what carries you through is your um, enthusiasm, um, the fact that everything you're encountering is quite new, mm. um, and it's exciting because of that. Um, and you don't worry about the future. Like, you don't worry about where it might all go or how it all might work out. And that's great, you know. I think that is actually mm. one of the beautiful things about being um, a young young person. Um, yeah. And, I and that definitely carries you through, yeah. like, a lot of stuff that maybe as you get older is just... It, it maybe it's too hard or... Yeah. It, not even too hard. You just can't be fucked. Like, you know, <laughs> like, you can't... You can't be bothered putting up with stuff you would not have cared about when you were younger in terms of the... And you val- I guess maybe your values change yeah. a bit. Well, that's, I, I even think of, I would liken it to an apprenticeship, actually, where you get shit pay, but you're not valuable enough to the company yet to be fully paid. And that's why you're an apprentice. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think that was the mind frame that I was in Mm. that, uh, remuneration is negotiable and your output versus your reward is negotiable because you haven't yet become valuable. And then at some point, whatever it was, I decided that I had value to give Mm. that should be met with Mm. whatever was market Mm. remuneration. Um, but I don't think that uh, that's the sticking point here. I think the sticking point is that it felt, even though, as you say, it, was, it wasn't focused on the future or where it could go, it still felt cumulative. It still felt like yep. I was building. Something was building. Yeah. yeah. And that is the... When that falls away, that is what... I think that is the age-old thing that people talk about. Um, like, that's the midlife crisis when you yeah. feel like you're not on the <laughs> way up anymore. Yeah, yeah. And you haven't got something to build or 
to sacrifice for. Or, but mm. but uh, it's happening a, a, in a career sense. It's happening way before your actual physical potential prime. Yes. It's happening at like early 30s yep. rather than, you know, when it should kind of happen in your late 50s or something. Mm. Mm. So I wonder about... I'm actually just thinking out loud about yeah. those things. I don't know what to approach with it. But for a while, you kind of think that you need to change something in your approach or your art or your pitch or whatever. Um, yeah, or like maybe you should do something else altogether. <laughs> I do wonder about this because I feel like... Uh, can I just... Because one please. thing that comes into it is like a question of uh, your own self-worth as an artist like th that's part of the that's one thing that gets questioned because one of the possibilities here is oh actually maybe I just wasn't that yeah. you know maybe I'm just not cut out for this maybe yeah. even though I made this sort of body of work this series of work as a younger artist you know maybe I've just not quite got whatever it is I might need to to cut it, you know, to, to sustain sort of a c career or, or a practice um, that resonates with uh, enough people mm. to, to be something that uh, other people want or want to support, mm. you know. And that's, of course, that's a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the possibility that you're just not very good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Or that your work isn't that good or or like maybe you've run out. Maybe it was good and maybe you've run out of like steam or ideas. Or this apparently happens for men. What do you mean? Like there's a curve. I remember reading Elton John talking about it, that there's a, a hormonal shift as you age and creativity is one of the things that can be affected by like just your chemical balance of your adventurousness in the world mm. what you and you get a bit more what fearful and cautious and yeah no i think that comes much much later but your desire to get in and rough something up to see what it could be and how mm. it might fall and your thirst for that you just kind of get a bit satisfied mm. Which is like, it's not the worst thing. Mm. It's nice to live a nice life. But I, do, I just remember Elton saying that he had these years where he, like, completely not up to him, genius just flowed out of him and he just watched it. Mm. And then it finished. I don't think I ever had that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. I, I, you know, I, I, but maybe you're not Elton. Well, that's right. That's that's, the, right. that's the danger of like making these comparisons. I guess like you can definitely learn from those people, anyone's experience, I suppose. But because mm. the other thing that is tricky in this, like questioning, okay, where you're at in your career, or what does it mean? Where like what we're talking about? We're also talking about a. a very small little industry like mm. it's very small little scene um that can barely support like well anyone <laughs> to, to be frank but like yeah you know like the people you yeah. look around the people who are sort of successful in inverted commas in this um 
in the arts community we're sort of a part of or the industry if you want to call it that yeah i um, probably wouldn't call well, it an industry well it's, it, no it's not is it but because there's not enough money yes um but the people who sort of you might say are successful are like i guess they've go through that process of forming a company yeah getting whatever training or funding or whatever it is like having a board and all that sort of stuff yeah. building that infrastructure around what they have so that um they can sort of survive or have more chance of surviving um uh through the various you know trends and fashions and uh, of of where the the art scene goes and um but but it's it's hard it's it's so hard it's like so that, that like i use the word survive it's like they're they're even the ones that are successful they're barely surviving mm. you know and there's that aspect to it too which is like the stuff that, that i've made as an artist like the performances the um the shows the projects i've done um have been for like very small audiences at the end of the day like there's a very small audience that has engaged with that right and to take things further there is a bigger audience i guess around festivals and and, and stuff but um it's still a small audience like, mm. and i know it's not all about audience but talking about like resources and careers that can sustain mm. um there does need to be uh i think the potential of a bigger audience that mm. you may one day engage yeah, with or reach and if that's not there then yeah. it does take leadership like political leadership that values arts and culture right to regardless like, of to go fame. this is actually important and actually and we just haven't had that for so long right. in this country yes like um you know really we haven't had that in this country since Paul Keating in the early 90s right you know it sort of came back a bit when Labor got back in with Rudd and Gillard and there's Creative Australia and but really we haven't had that big vision of like Australia as a place mm and tied into that the importance of the arts mm. in defining what that place is mm. since since Keating and it's um that's a long time it's like 20 years or something 25 years <laughs> how do you separate self-worth from not self-worth as in like your personal worth how do you separate uh the feeling of what you're making is worth making versus uh it's being supported like how do you separate out the lack of support as a validating factor in the con in continuing making um well yeah i don't know like i like i said i've been doing the uni teaching for about four years mm. so I've made maybe five shows down there and I have no problem um even though that's like in this sort of educational context it's largely about the students learning through the doing of 
making a show and you know so it's more about that than it is about me making work um the way i make that a good experience for them and for me is to dive into it as yeah. i would any other yeah. project yeah and while there are limitations working that way like i don't have a production team as such i've got production students i don't have you know i'm sort of the the adult in the room if you like um which brings a different set of responsibilities to if you're working in an artistic team making a piece. There are also lots of freedoms and liberties mm. in that context um, where I, I actually don't worry about that stuff you're talking about, self-worth or validity to that much. It's like I'm interested in this idea and, yeah. I, and I, get, I just get caught up in the creative process when, I, when I'm doing that and I'm not worried about whether anyone thinks it's worthwhile or not. Like I, but somebody's telling you that it is worthwhile because of the resources that are getting given to you true. to make it happen. Yeah. It's and validated it's, by being in the university context. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And by you getting paid to be there yeah. because of your expertise and how you approach yeah. it. And yeah. yeah. So how, if that's not there, how do I, <laughs> how do you know that anything you, has any value yeah. if no resources are, uh, awarded it apart um, from your own I, I think um, well sometimes yeah you don't know do you but like I wonder about despair like sorry I wonder about despair despair and that if you wanted to run to the top of a skyscraper for example mm. and nobody was interested mm in getting an audience together f to be there by the time you got to the top mm. and like, would you try and get an audience together? And would you at every step of the way be like, Oh yeah, this is a great idea. Everyone else is a fuckhead. They just can't see the potential. Or would you be like, Oh, maybe it's not a good idea. I'll think about another idea. And then that keeps happening. Well, I think both of those things happen for me. Okay. Like, um, yeah, like, if I'm making something, even if it's got that validation of someone presenting it or yeah. giving it money, yeah. there's enormous doubt in the process. Right. Of course there is, like, along the way of going, uh, what, like, you know, trying to work out what it is and... and Maybe that's exactly where doubt can be functional, when there is a support structure that will push you towards presentation anyway. Yeah, I think that's you, true. You I think it's probably harder if you're just like having your own... See, I'm trying to just t speak from my own experience and the, I guess I have done things that haven't been supported mm. at all and I've just done them because I've wanted to have a practice. Like and what, I've wanted to get, um, Well, like at the moment I've just started with um, Malcolm Whitaker and... Natin, uh, Vengalaka, you know Natin? I don't know. Uh, is he a comedian? Uh, sort of. He does like absurdist writing and yes. um, sort of, he's done a few like solo shows yep. that are his own sort of absurd writing and sort of, he kind of does a very deadpan character. And, <laughs> yes, I've met him. Yeah. But I think he was still in character when I was talking he to him. He might have been. Yeah, he's got a very deadpan sense of humor. <laughs> um, and, uh, He's, he's very, really interesting. He finally just finished his PhD, actually, on... is on Pina Bausch and um, 
uh, Jacques Tati, I think. Um, so anyway, I've been meeting up with Nitin and Mao. Um, we only just started like maybe a couple of months ago, and, but we just meet up like we'll meet up tomorrow. Maybe we're trying to make it more regular, like maybe every week, but we've maybe it's been every fortnight or so, mm. just when people are free. And we just meet up for like two or three hours, grab a space somewhere, and um, we're just playing around really in the room as all as performers, um, not trying to work as much as we can without any text. So yeah. presence and movement and physicality, I guess. Um, and I've done stuff like that before, like just meeting up with people and, and just trying to like, not worrying about it being a project, not worrying about it having this end point. Right. Um, just doing it for the practice of it. Mm. And with obviously with some hope that there's something there yeah. that it might sort of percolate into something. Yeah. And, um, and I think, uh, I, I really love that. I love that, um, space and having that kind of a practice. And it's something that I've wanted for like for a long time, like, and I've had it at different points. Um, because I, when I was doing uh, more sort of bigger projects and uh, like the tent or hole in the wall or whelping box, like these these things that sort of had more of a life out there in the world, I was very aware as a young artist getting some of those good opportunities that I was falling into a pattern. And I see look around and see this a lot too with my peers and of being very project dependent, like or project-based mm -hmm. so that you'd have these intense, like a creative development of like four weeks or something. Uh, and then, you know, a few months later, you'd come back to that work either in another creative development or in, you know, the four week rehearsal block that goes into the production. And so you have these intense periods of working and creation, mm. but then in between, I, that there'd, there'd be nothing like you might be doing like, the admin you need to do to keep those things going. You might yeah. be doing some of the production stuff or you might be doing whatever normal life stuff you've got to do as well, you know, but I, I was quite aware of this uh, practice, if you like developing, that was completely dependent on these big chunks of intense time. Mm. But what I really like sort of crave was like a bit more of a regular practice that isn't dependent on, those yeah. projects so that yeah. when you get to those focused chunks of time, you kind of, you're kind of limbo. You're kind of, yeah, you're you, in the practice. You, you, you've, you, yeah, exactly. Mm. You, you, you have this practice that's supporting you to go into those more intense yeah. periods and, and also to have the, so yeah, it's a bit about practice and it's a bit about having a space where you're not trying to make something. You're not like, because those developments too are so focused on, even if they're process-based, they're still focused on getting to a point. Yeah. You know, like we've got a showing at the end of this. We've got yeah. to like, or there's always these outcomes, which is great. That's part of making work. But having this uh, space like what sort of started doing with Mal and the Tin, where, yeah, you hope it might turn into something, but there's none of that pressure. Um, if it's the right people and it's the right chemistry, um, that's great. I really love that.
Was that a similar setup for the show that I saw with you and James Brown down at Bondi? Um, no, that was, that's a bit different because, like, um, the stuff with James, the small town stuff, it's very, um, you know, it's very, I guess, comedy. It's kind of straight up comedy, parody, mm. irony. Mm. Um, and so that tends to come a lot more, I think, out of hanging out together. Mm. Talking about stuff. Okay. Um, having an idea for something. Like, we, ha- we, we don't really get in a space and just jam kind of thing. Right. We, we sort of... Well, like, we're very good friends, so we sort of hang out anyway. Yeah. And the stuff we've done together as Small Town has been a bit more... Come from a clearer idea, I guess, or a, or a concept. And that's something that could turn into a practice, but we've only done these sort of isolated things so that we haven't sort of continued it. But, um, I see that as a bit more of a, of a, you have an idea. Um, you're pretty clear about what that thing's going to be. Yeah. And then we get together and we write, you know, there's a fair bit of writing involved or <coughs> right. sourcing images for the slideshows. And, um, which one was that the manhood one or the, um, the, the, it, like the bad play. It was the one that was, Kind of taking off Tom Cruise in that movie. Oh, it was like with the guns and stuff. Uh, no. I think you got your dads up on stage. Oh yeah, no, that was like the man. It was like five steps to manhood. Or something. Yeah, and was that? Do you think that? How I would be interested to hear you talking about the relationship of that to Welping Box and then to um, the tent. And then, hmm. um, yeah, sure. Uh, any like, well, particular? Because I mean, I, when you, you say that, I, I go straight to form, but you might be talking about more content. Yeah. Uh, I. It seems like what you're doing is asking questions in front of the audience through parody through like turning the volume up to 11 on Mm. these uh, mannerisms or Mm. accepted norms or whatever. Mm. Uh, And that... And there's a... What is there? There's like a... What am I thinking? I'm definitely thinking about content. Um, But also... I expect that you correct you correct me because I didn't see the tent one, mm-hmm. so I don't know. But it seems like it was dealing with uh, how to be. Yep. Yep. And I also think Welping Box was dealing with how to be. Mm. And then this, and then um, Five Steps Manhood is also dealing with how to be. I mean, also the sliding. The one with Claire that was, I forget what it was called. Hole in the Wall. Hole in the Wall. That was also dealing with how to be, but that was more of a like a interrelational how to be. Mm, mm. And this was more, uh, uh, these other ones seem like they have a trajectory mm. uh, of, and I, so I wonder a lot of things about them. I wonder if the, the questions that you have as you enter these different things are changing over the 10 years that you've been asking these questions and if you've integrated the answers into your life at all 
Um, maybe a useful example, maybe not, is that when I did, when I presented Bloke's project with Josh Thompson up in Brisbane, we had this like site safety manager that tried to tell us that we needed to integrate sandbags into the choreography to keep things in place. And for whatever reason, I actually went at that guy in quite an aggressive way that I've seen my dad do in truck yards. <laughs> and it's something that like I try to never access because I don't think that it's a good way for society to work on like no. aggression uh. and confrontation <laughs> and fights. Uh. Um, but what confronted me even more than the fact that I went to that place is that it worked yeah. and he backed down it's, and then I got what on, I wanted. Yeah, that's very confronting when you see that work, when you see other people doing it and you're just like, oh, God, that, don't be like that to yeah. that. But it no. worked for me to yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah, 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 exactly, and yeah. I, and yeah. so what that has taught me is that that is a tool that I can keep in my toolbox for when, for when I think it's appropriate. But the thing is that I don't think it's ever appropriate. And so this is interesting, and it's forced me to change, which, which only comes from a physical practice of asking these questions. Mm. Mm. Um, because to just ask them, there's this phrase called, like when a piece of writing has the whiff of the candle about it, where somebody's just sat up late at night like just dreaming up these very watertight <laughs> ways of how to deal with the world. But they're not actually no. <laughs> learning at all through practice. No. <laughs> or embodiment. Or that. like That's how your physiology will respond to a situation. Yeah. yeah. That's very interesting, though, that anecdote. Um, and you saying, like, you don't think it's ever appropriate. And maybe that's true, but, you know, I can imagine that being maybe necessary if there was some, I don't know, you had to like deal with someone who was behaving in a worse way than that. You know, if you had to deal with someone who was violent or yeah. threatening or, yeah, you know, I can imagine there being some very unusual, like uncommon circumstances where that might actually be yeah. something that you need to use. Um, I don't know. For, the, for, the, for, for some good, you know, for some good. Not, not to, like, get um, a refund for your jet stuff. Like. <laughs> Although, yeah. Because that's of, where I think of it. These kind like, of things are far more common occurrences, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know about it, but what I, what I, there's two things wrapped up in my questioning of this, is that the tent thing seems like, sorry, what was it called? It was just called... The tent. The tent. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. It seems like there were archetypes through which you could become, but then also ask questions. Mm. And you could smuggle challenges into archetypes that were not challenging for audiences. Or even like where the tent was, was already a challenge. Where did you see it? I only saw it on the internet. Oh, cool, cool. <laughs> I was wondering if you saw it in Darwin, that was all. Yeah. No. But but it got like it got quite a bit of touring. Yeah, no, it did really well. Yeah. And then Welping Box seems like even a bigger production in terms of like the production tech mm -hmm. and team and going out into the into the um, like out of the city to actually go through these 
processes of mm. what would eventually be boiled down into the show. Yeah. Um, instead of like crafting the show necessarily within the black box. And then, it, so this like gradual, this cumulative, mm. it was happening. Mm. And then it feels like there's two ways. Like your interest and understanding keeps developing, but perhaps the resources do not keep growing. Mm. And so Five Steps to Manhood is like the continuation of your interests and working through what it is. And because once you answer a question, then the next question reveals itself. Mm. Uh, And so I also wonder what it would have been if the accumulation of the questions was met with accumulation of resources. Mm. And if it would have been the musical. (laughs) A musical. (laughs) Five Steps to Manhood, the musical. Yep. Um, anyway, oh God. there's so much to, yeah, there's so many different ways to, um, look at that. And I'd never really, uh, thought, I thought back on those works and thought about it as something connecting them being sort of asking the question of how to be. And, um, that's, I really like that something you see in it because that reminds me, I think of what has always made me interested in performance Mm. um, as something to make, but also something to do. Because on a kind of selfish level, it's always, and when it's been really, I don't know, when it's really, one way it's been useful to me is like, it is a space where you are experimenting with ways of being um, and where you've kind of got a lot of freedom to try different ways of being that you don't necessarily feel like you can get away with Mm. in, in everyday life. And, you know, I guess you hear actors talk about that all the time in terms of like, I get to, you know, you get to be all these different people. And I don't mean it so much in that sense. Like, I guess not in like, but I'd, I'd never thought of the, the works themselves maybe asking that question, and that's interesting. Hmm. Um, yeah, look, I guess you, what you're asking there about... See, see the stuff with James, the small town stuff, the five steps of manhood, to me that's like a totally different... Sometimes I would think about that as like this complete other path to something like the tent or hole, hole in the wall or, or whelping box because um, the small town stuff is just so uh, it feels like it's so in the world of parody and comedy that formally it feels so different mm. so definitely something like whelping box <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's something I've grappled with in my practice like, or trying to work out my practice is like having these different interests or intuitions. And like you're talking at the start about, um, forget what you said you were saying. Oh, you were talking about nature theater of Oklahoma and, mm. and theater and like you, you getting excited, you know, when you're watching a performance and things aren't said that don't need to be said mm. and how a lot of theater, uh, and a lot of art really 
does that too much. They, you know, says too much mm. and, and tries to explain things too much. You know, I, I think often in an attempt to make sure the audience has a way in, but um, something like Whelping Box is like exactly the kind of show I want to go and see mm. if I'm going to live performance. <clears throat> like, yeah. that's an experience where I think if I walked in that show not knowing anything about it, um, I would just be sitting there going, what, what the fuck, what is this? Like, like what I want to experience as an audience is to be in something and not know what the fuck is happening or what is going to happen, but to be completely engaged and with it mm. and present. That to me is a great night in the theatre. <laughs> but but that, that is a great uh, thing to have, a ex- great experience to have. And to me, that is something that live performance can do that, you know, other mediums can't necessarily do in the same way, like film and television. And, and so that's a reason to do live performance. Um, mm. Something like this small town five steps to manhood that could be on tv you know that could work on tv in that in like a skit show or yeah like like it's it's comedy you know yeah. it's like it's it's very language based i mean that's yeah. the other thing about whelping box that's so satisfying is it's like and and i think you can create that kind of experience when you don't you 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 skew language as much as possible you know i think and and you because language as soon as you bring text into something it it's so very dominant that it it kind of even if it's not meant to be saying this is what the work is mm. it says this mm. is what the work is but do you think that's just literacy and practice like that we we become as a society we focus on making people as literate as possible in text then mathematics, then mm. Mm. then say science, then nutrition. <laughs> like there's there's mm. a hierarchy of literacy, mm. and like the physical empowerment of being embodied mm. is further down than it probably should be. I also think that scientific understanding is further down than it should be. But mm. Mm. Um, at the method, not the findings. I think that's true. Mm. Um, but that's not why. And, and I think, so I, and I think, it, I think what gets tricky with how people might uh, engage with art or performance yeah. is that a lot of an audience, like if you're talking about general public or whatever, like their experience of engaging with performance is mostly film and television, and their text-based, narrative-based yeah. forms. Yeah, yeah where it is about what's being said. Right. Um, and so, um, but I don't know. I, I still think that you can make something that doesn't use language. Yeah. That's performance that, um, like I still, yeah, I don't know. For me, but, there's a, there's a potential in, the fact that people love the shit out of songs and they often sing along to them, but off then years later they find out they've been singing the wrong words. Mm. And that 
means something to me. That they're there for an experience. That the text is there, but the text is not dominating it's not important. its literal meaning. No, that's really interesting about music. Yeah. I've thought about that a fair bit. Actually, uh, mu- music is an interesting thing to bring up because I often have thought when I'm making a show, like I want it to work on the audience like a piece of music. Yeah, you know, I don't want it to be necessarily a. a a narrative experience or a story experience, even if that's in there. I want it, like, the best for me is if you could make a performance that works on the audience like a piece mm. of music. And I mean that in the sense of, and sort of what you're saying there with people not remembering the words years later, but people, you can have a piece of music play and it can make someone cry mm. and they have no idea what it is that's making them cry, you know? and. And I think it's largely because it's, it's an abstract art form. Like, there's something about the fact we only hear it. Um, it's inherently abstract. Like, it's not representational. Sometimes the words in a song do add a representational element. Mm-hmm. But like you say, they're usually not that important, the words. It's like the great... Um, there's a great series of YouTubes on non-English speakers singing English songs. Uh. <laughs> And of course, they're just singing it melodically. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're making sounds that are not words for them. We can in, interpret words. words out yeah. of the sounds that they're making, mm. but that's not but they're what they're They're not worried singing. about the meaning. Yeah. And there's also even, a, I think it's a Chris Rock skit, like a stand-up skit, where he talks about um, feminism being left at the door at a club when there's really dirty music that's really good and there's these kind of lyrics that are completely anti-feminist mm. but the girls love dancing to the beat of the music because of the environment and the joy of dancing to it that it somehow just gets zoned out for a second. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Fully scary, <laughs> yeah. For real. Yeah. But then I think yeah. about... Um, how oh, just in terms of like you can you could be saying anything like is that yeah. a way to get your, your your little message sort of in under the under the door anyway yeah I think it happens all the time uh, the how like all Warner Brothers cartoons mm. and like Bugs Bunny and stuff they all use very prescriptive sound effects but it's all symphonic. Like it's a violin as mm. Bugs Bunny yep, steps yep. through the jungle, yep. stuff like that. Yeah. So that's the opposite of abstract, but completely abstracted. Yeah. But then, yeah. Anyway, so but sound it's, effects. It's sort of employing it to to represent something. Yeah. Which yeah. is why Whelping Box was the like the best show that I saw that year for me was that the decision on what to and what to not amplify, so that our sense of intimacy was increased mm. with the moments of impact and with the skin and with the breath uh, that made it, I mean this term was very big when I was at VCA, visceral, yep. and then it kind of went out, yep. it was, people weren't writing it anymore, yep. but it made me feel the organs, I guess of the performers, like the yeah. liquids and the sweat and the yeah. impact Yeah, I think that was a great choice I think that was like Jack, my brother, Jack Press did the sound and, um, and I think I can't remember exactly where all that, how that all evolved, but I think a lot of that was probably Lee as well. Just not wanting to have sound 
that wasn't from the space. Mm. Um, I think they call that diegetic sound, where oh, really? sound that's made. Okay. It's like the sound that you're hearing is what you can kind of see in front of you, or it's happening actually happening on stage. Right. I think that's what that means. Um, and I think that really was a strong decision in that show. Um, and I think it's something like Lee's and Lee Mirabov continued to sort of explore, like in high performance packing tape with um, Phil mm-hmm. Downing, they kind of continued to explore that idea of micing things up and, and making sound design out of what you record or capture. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, in Whelping Box, I think it helped to create that viscerality and um, I don't know, it makes me think too of uh, sport, actually. The way sport is uh, presented like say basketball mm. they have mics on the on the near the net so even though you're home watching on tv whenever they the ball goes through and you get a nice like it's it's really present it's a rich like crisp like yeah tennis sound. as well tennis exactly yeah. like i'm not sure when that started but it's uh, one well, of the olympics i forget which one but there's a a sound dude that I remember listening to being interviewed and he right. was talking about the specific Olympics where it became expected mm. that you could hear the squeak of the shoes mm. and the racket hit and like the rubber compress and expansion on balls and stuff like that. Wow. Yeah. And that like somebody's whole job is just bringing the, bringing the volume down when the audience roars and bringing it back up. Shit yeah. like that. Yeah. On those microphones. That stuff is fascinating to me because, because yeah. it does, that use of sound does bring you closer mm. to what's happening. Mm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think Whelping Box, I, I sometimes used to think that even just the performance quality and the relationship to the audience, it did, there was something about it that I was, was a bit like sport because we never looked at the audience. We never acknowledged them. Mm-hmm. Yet we were so close to them, and they were so close to us. While yeah. we did all this sort of intense physical stuff yeah. with our bodies, but we never kind of like looked to them and did it to them. And to me, that's sort of what happens in sport as well. You have uh, these performances that are happening within the game mm-hmm. that are, and this is something. This wasn't something really talked about when we're making welcome box. It was just more on reflection of how it worked with an audience, but. In a, in a, you've got this physical in a game of football or whatever you've got this really intense physical thing going on this performance um, but the performers are not are so occupied with their game or their task mm. that they're not worried about the audience they know the audience is watching and they know the audience is invested in what's happening yeah um, they don't need to look you know no. they don't need to say hi this this is what Hi, how are you going? Welcome, blah, blah, blah. Um, the only time that breaks is if they score or and they celebrate and maybe they gesture to the crowd mm. or, or, that or, one or they win. Or, like Hussein Bolt, and he just turned to look at the camera as he was running across the finish line and then that became the photo where everyone else is killing themselves trying to get faster than him <laughs> and he's just breezing and he's through. Got the time and he's got the time, time. exactly, yeah. to have a look. Yeah, well, that's where it gets broken is when they win. Yeah. Uh, then they'll 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 have a direct relationship with the audience, but um, but there, what's but it's still it can easily be shit to do that. And but Welping Box did a good version of it, 
where it's not for us but as the spectator but it doesn't neglect the uh it doesn't neglect its responsibility to be spectated mm. uh so i did a duet like five or six years ago with miranda ween where we were in eye contact the whole time so we never looked at the audience either but less so for her but for me it was i was i would center i like the audience was at the center of my responsibility mm-hmm. that i would think we like we would work out a move that we could do together because it's just very form based how i think about these things and then i would think okay the audience will get more from seeing that move if we do it on this other angle right because i knew the theater that we were going to be in so there was like a responsibility to perform for but not to mm. yeah 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 i think that in welpenbox that was hugely supported by the set design yeah so and being in the round so mirabel and claire um yeah. putting it in the round yeah like and in that close proximity meant that there was an intimacy there yeah where and with a single row as well you yes. couldn't hide behind anything yes that was exactly yeah so yeah i think you were implicated in what was happening I love that shit without without without, or, without being asked to do yeah, anything yeah like awkward audience interaction yeah exactly yeah. you're you're in it without being asked to do anything which is great like you could actually be a voyeur mm. um even though uh, you feel probably as an audience a little bit exposed because you are in one line. There's other audience who can look at you. Um, you know, you feel implicated. But see, one thing I felt with audiences in that show, and I don't know if this is true because it's just my vibe, but <laughs> I used to feel like audiences would start off kind of on edge mm. because of the setup mm. and and kind of feeling like... Uh, like I, I feel like some of that apprehension was like, fuck, what am I going to be made to do? Mm. You know, what's this going to, what's going to happen here? Like, am I going to like, you know, but then I would feel like about, and also it sort of started with quite a serious tone, I guess. People kind of think came to it feeling it was going to be this heavy, intense thing. And I think it was intense, but it was also quite funny. Like, I think there was a lot of humor and playfulness there. And so like halfway through, you'd feel this sort of the audience just relax a little bit. Because even though um, they're implicated, mm. they kind of got the sense of, no, these guys are just doing their thing. Mm. I can actually just watch this. Um, and that was really interesting. And, and also being becoming aware of the playful aspect of the work, I think that... But that was always interesting to sense that. Yeah. That sort of... The audience sort of getting... Just relaxing after initially kind of feeling like... Uh, what the fuck is going to happen here? <laughs> where, where in the timeline did your fellowship sit? Ah, um, so I got the Creative Australia Fellowship. So that was the Labor government. That was R- Rudd, I guess, was it? Yeah, no, it was Rudd Gillard. Yeah, but so that was Labor getting back in and going, all right, we're going to give some money to the arts again. Okay. Um, okay. I got that in 2012, Uh, so that was around April, I think, I got that for two years, and Whelping Box presented 
in October 2012. So we'd started making it in 2010 at an Albury Hothouse residency, and then it sort of came back to it in little ways, and then 2012 we, we made it. Uh, so I got the fellowship sort of five months before Welping yeah. Box. And the Welping Box sort of had a few other iterations, not really many, we kind of went to Melbourne Arts House and then did APAM and then nothing happened with it. <laughs> Why? It was a good I show. Have no, no idea really. This, I mean, I don't know. If I'm ever, Maybe it's in not for everybody. I guess I don't know. Feelings of despair come up when a pattern cannot be recognised because then you are without agency to diagnose and then act upon the world. That, that, that's that's true. That's true. And I, and I think I think uh, yeah, I think that welping box not getting picked up more did um yeah it was a little bit i don't know despair is maybe seems like too strong a word because i know you know a lot of this stuff is is timing and luck and who's who sees it and who wants to do what and so i'm not yeah i don't know if it feels despair but it was yeah it, it is sad in a way like i thought like, to me, that's the best work I've been involved in um, and exactly the kind of work I want to make. And it got a great response and, you know, it won a health and award for what it's worth. But... Um, <laughs> for what? Well, you know, it, it got recognised. Like, yeah. So I don't think it's just me that thinks, that it's thinks good. it was good. Because it got validated. It did get validated. <laughs> <laughs> but it was interesting that it didn't uh, get more of an outing, for sure. Because I think... Um, there's lots of places I could see it going in and, and working really well. And, but, you know, that's just sometimes that's just the luck, luck of the draw. But definitely makes you reconsider, like, what's the next thing I'm going to do? Like, you know, it, it did, it probably did take the wind of the, out of the sails a little bit, if that's what you're getting at. That's what it feels like from the outside. Mm. For, like, that's only me. I don't, I'm not saying that mm. there's like a general. Everybody's thinking about how you're doing that. No, no, no. no, only because I feel a, I feel a mirror of myself. Yeah, so maybe I'm yeah. projecting my own experiences yeah. onto you as yeah. well. But you feel like the the wind and the sails. There's an elation when there's wind in the sails, mm. and a confidence. Because even if you don't know where you're going, you're going. And I think it's it's confidence too. Yeah. Like I think you feel you just your confidence grows and uh, you feel more empowered and um, and that can carry you um, quite far but um, do you think it was politically the wrong time for that work I'm just thinking uh, about the next know. work that I don't know um, branch came out with that was it there was a, that it was at um, carriage works that was very much focused on like uh, temporary workers. Artwork, yeah, artwork, I was involved yeah. in that. Yeah. yeah, so I feel like that was such a different work politically, but same creative team and same high standard of output and and product as a show. Mm. Uh, and I wonder if... Anywhere. Right. Well, don't know. But their latest one is, is going off, High Performance Packing Tape. Well, Which feels like... It's a natural progression of a lot of their work and comes like there's definitely continuation from Welping Box and um, 
and I mean, I think there's practical things involved. Like they said with high-performance packing tape, one of the things they came out of Welping Box was like, oh, well, maybe we've got to make a show that can just actually fit in a theatre to a front-on audience. Like, yeah. there's a very prag pragmatic thing there, which Welping Box was this, you know, um, sort of square catwalk yeah. that needed an empty black box space. Yeah. It wasn't that difficult, but it was just difficult enough to maybe not get into a few places. Like... You know, it needed, it couldn't be bumped in and out for something else to happen after it. Um, like, it's, it wasn't that hard. No, but, I don't. But, well, but it's interesting, high-performance packing tape, which is um, also, like, it's an awesome show. It's a great show in its own right. And yes. And totally different yeah. to, to Welping Box. And it's so great, actually, just to see Lee as a solo performer on stage mm. bring just what he does. Yeah. Um, to bear on an audience and, and in a si sort of series of situations. I mean, I love that show so much, so I could go down a road <laughs> about how, how good that show is. I, but, um, but there was something, they did make a concrete like decision to g make this a little bit more tourable, even though you think Welcome Box is pretty tourable. This one's like one performer, yeah. stuff you can buy in yeah. different locations and it can go in a front-on space. And yeah. that's... I'm, so good that is working. If that didn't work, if they were, if that was not yeah, getting exactly. to it, then we would all need to like seriously reconsider. Maybe, what we're doing. or maybe there is no <laughs> really despair. reason. That would be a cause for despair. <laughs> that would be cause for despair. I, I composed for a show called Lake by Lisa Wilson, and the entire stage was flooded in a few inches of water, and it toured like ten venues oh, around. A yeah, stadium. no, I know. Like, if people want something badly enough, they'll they'll do. Or like do whatever, I like yeah. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> um, but I, th I think maybe it fit. I think maybe it fit in this awkward space where it was like it was kind of an independent scale work because your audience was sort of capped around ninety, and it was also maybe not for the masses. Say, like it wasn't. I think anyone could see that show and get into it. I also um, think but, that, but. but Anyone who I think a lot boxing. of presenters were a little bit scared of how they would sell that work, perhaps. Yeah. Right. Um, but I, I do think it just sat in this awkward space between indie work and actually it needed a bigger scale of, I don't know, presenter or festival to sort of... Like you perform it in a boxing stadium. Uh, no, well, maybe. <laughs> that, that could be interesting. Um, no, I, I just mean like... Uh, like it was presented at performance space the first time yeah. it happened. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm what Doesn't I'm matter. That. Let's but, talk about then continuing. Oh, but, with your sorry, can we just... Yes. Because you said... You <laughs> said back. Do you think... Because you, you asked before, do you think... Uh, did you say politically it happened? At, it was not quite... Yeah, like... I don't know. What it like, was focused on, its content or its cast or... I, I think that probably... I think the fact that it was two guys and it was sort of... Like, we, the interesting thing about Welping Box is me and Lee and Claire and Mirabelle were the yeah. team. Yeah, And then Jack came on board later on as sound. But it was really the four of us um, making a work together. And, um, you know, we, we started that at Albury in the hot house with like when our kids they've got two boys and we've got one boy and they were all little kids together they grew up together and they were like four or something when we 
that residency. So we were like two families hanging out um, and then just sort of really just jamming on what this work might be. Um, Claire's, um, sorry, Mirabelle's sister Daisy looked after the kids a bit. Well, so the four of us just intensely made this work. And we never talked about like, I don't think, uh, I'm not sure we ever would have used the word masculinity, like in the making of that show. Mm. Um, Definitely the things we're exploring kind of, you could say they were questioning ideas of masculinity, blah, blah, blah. Um, But, and, and it was me and Lee performing, so that's just inherently something you're going to read into that. Um, but yeah, definitely the work as it resulted, if you're trying to work out what is this about, um, you, you one of the things you probably try to frame over it is, oh, this is sort of questioning ideas of masculinity or this is about how men relate to each other or something like that. You could read that into it. Um, and yeah, maybe the fact that it was two men performing, it was sort of, there was this sort of violent undertone. Um, there was this, you know, the, the images for, for it were kind of two guys on leashes with tape ra- around their head. It's sort of an aggressive looking mm. uh, image. Yeah, maybe that um, didn't sit well with a lot of people. I, I don't know, maybe um, that's not something that, um, you know, maybe it felt like that wasn't something that needs to be uh, presented or shared that we have enough of that in the world, you know. Um, but, but, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I definitely think it's not for everybody. Don't like for sure. Like, not everybody is going to get into that w- work. Um, Imagine if you. But, but I don't know. I, I don't think. Like, I think. Yeah, I, I really don't know about the political aspect of it. I don't think that's really that big a factor yeah um i think it's just some people like and some people don't yeah fair enough uh but then you went to paris yeah so i went to paris before welcome box i got my fellowship and kind of went straight to paris oh shit and did like a month in a clown school (laughs) (laughs) and what does that mean these days what is the contemporary Oh, so that was Philip Goulier, you know, um, I, I think, um, so, so I saw this performer, Dr. Brown, mm. maybe back in 2011, Phil Burgers, who is American, um, clown, but I saw him do a performance at Imperial Panda Festival, which he'd done at all the like fringe festivals and stuff. And I just never laughed like that ever because he you know use the word clown and people kind of freak out like it's going to be the, the worst thing ever but um and i didn't know this was clowning but he was you know it was like an hour-long show kind of little skits i suppose but there's just something about his presence and you know hardly any words as well so it was that thing i was talking about of like just having an experience where it's not being explained to you mm. but it's just something it's really so much of what was funny was his presence mm. for like an hour like as he goes from one stupid thing to the next stupid thing and um the reason i say like i'd never laughed like that before is because it made me realize that a lot of comedy um is language based and 
it made me feel like sometimes what we're laughing at is um, is it, it's sort of an act of recognition, like it's sort of an act of going of of showing that you relate to that or you or you get that, like, and it's sort of ideas based, mm. you know, and I guess that's language is very linked to ideas, mm. and the experience of watching Dr. Brown was like just so it was just so absurd and so abstract like I, I, it was really hard to explain what was good about the show to people because wow you, you know apart from sort of focus on the idea of his presence because i was just laughing at this idiot like and this this the way he was doing things i, I was mm. i was laughing at what was happening and um i just never had that experience before and anyway he trained at Philip Goulier, who's this old dude in sort of 50Ks out of Paris who runs this clown school, and I think he's still going. He was like, he's, he must be getting on quite a bit. But he, he trained with Lecoq and broke away and did his own thing. And okay. um, he, he's definitely got a, very much a cult following. Like, a lot of people go there having seen people like Phil at yeah. fringe festivals. And I think it's kind of the trend has died off a bit but like mm-hmm. when I went it was like you know everyone wanted to go and train with anyone who was doing comedy in the sort of fringe circuit was yeah. wanting to go and find out how to be how to do this stuff like wow. and be with this guy Goulier and and he's been around for a long time he like uh, Sasha Baron Cohen is probably his most famous student mm. and and it's a bit of myth and cult around it and it was definitely like the thing to do for a few years there yeah um did you ever see zoe kumsma um her dave show the one she where she plays dave the the stand-up the guy who's like obscene and horrible and and she did this whole bit on like dave goes to philip goulier to like find his inner clown or inner idiot oh so good (laughs) it's so good it's such a good um, was that show called Dave? I can't remember what it was actually called. She won the Melbourne Comedy Festival All right. prize for it, the wow. Barry. But um, it both lampooned the whole Goulier thing mm. um, because it did become a bit of this sort of cult trend. But she also did, like, a version of it that was so perfect. Like, she had, uh, she didn't do Goulier, but she did in the show, like, this... Like, Goulier teaches a number of different stuff. One's clown. Mm-hmm. He does straight-up, like, mask work. Um, but one of the ones he does, which is really interesting, is Buffon, mm. um, which I did clown in Buffon, and I really like Buffon. But she did, like, the most wonderful uh, version of, of Buffon um, while sort of lampooning this Goulier thing as Dave, this character Dave, went to Goulier to find he's in a clown and... Um, Oh. And what's Dave's day job? Dave, I don't know what, if Dave had a day job. You have oh, to okay. speak to Zoe. Okay. But um, he's a stand-up. Yeah, okay. Like he's cutting it, trying to cut it as a stand-up. Yeah. Oh, this is a great okay. show, a great <laughs> performance. That, that show, like... Did it go anywhere was, after oh, that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, great. Yeah. It's good. I just like to... Uh, sometimes uh, uh, when uh, shows are great, I like to hear that they keep going. Yeah, no, that was a big success for her. And she, you know... It was stand-up, it was comedy, and it was performance as mm. well. 
Like, it, it's one of the best things I've seen. There's a whole YouTube series on um, sitcoms without their laugh tracks. <laughs> and then you watch it, you feel the awkwardness, you feel embarrassed <laughs> for the actors. And then you can also That's see, so good. <laughs> you can also see it like Seinfeld, Friends. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to see that. But then you can also see it if you ever put any of these like comedy adult cartoons, like Family Guy or whatever, on mute. You can see how much they just don't do anything. Yeah, they stand there and they move their hands around, and that's kind of it. It's all about the writing. It's all about the writing, and uh, even a lot of skit shows. You see them sit around a table delivering the lines, which is what Friends was. Like ultimately, they arrive at the cafe, they sit around the couches, they deliver the lines, and it's not funny. <laughs> no, it's not at all. Not so, at all. what did what G- Gullio, What, what did he do, do for you? No, yeah, like no. What not? Not like don't tell us about it. What he does? Oh well, there is one. You got to know a little okay. bit about what he does because okay. it's pretty great. Like he sits at the back of a room with like like the clown. It was a summer class, so it wasn't doing the proper like six week thing. Okay. Like the proper course goes for I think two years, but I was doing a summer like four week intensive. Okay. You do clown in the afternoon before and in the morning. The clown course attracts the most people, and so I think there were like 30, 35 people in this class, which is too many. But everyone's sitting down while two people at a time get up and try to be like clowns ruthless because you just have to be funny like there's no other there's no like you're not there learning how to juggle you're not there learning how to fall over um he's basically trying to put you in situations where you've got to be funny and if you're not or you're boring like he's got a drum and oh. he just bangs the drum isn't that hey hey it's saturday kind of yeah that's a gong but he's got this boom 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 and wow. uh you would literally like you might walk on and he'll bang the drum. Because you just won't. Because you're, pre- you're there. not there, your presence is somewhere you else, tell. you've got some idea. I, I, I learned a lot from being there, even though it was a short amount of time. I never found my clown, <laughs> whatever that even means. Um, I remember like, doing an improvisation at um, Ultima Vez in Brussels, and uh-huh. Vim was just like, yeah, be interesting, huh? <laughs> 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 to like the whole room, because he, he has to watch all this shit, yeah, and he's yeah. bored. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing that was, like, he teaches via this idea of, he teaches this idea of via negativa, I think it is. So mm-hmm. as a teacher, he will be very critical and say basically your shit. Mm-hmm. And, and especially with clown, that's about, like, you, the clown needs to have basically, it's really vulnerable space. You've yeah. got to drop everything kind of and, and, and not be trying to be funny and, okay. you know, you can't think you're good at all, like like, and, and so he'll he'll lay into you like, and, and kind of be quite almost playful with how much of an asshole he is, and you know that's what he's doing, but it doesn't matter. Like you get up there four times in a row and you've totally sucked. You know, by the fourth time, even though you know this is sort of he's performing this to some extent and it's a teaching thing. You can't help but start to feel like, fuck, I'm just, I just suck at this. And I think it's partly the process of getting to the point where you're not trying, you know, you're not, okay. you're not trying to be funny. You're not trying right. to be good. Like instead you're, you're available for impulse you're, and you're yeah. open. Yeah. And you're right. open and you find some, I don't know. It's been a long time since I've done it or thought about it, 
But one thing he'd always talk about is forget your shitty idea. Like, you know, yeah, let okay. go of you've your had shitty the idea. idea. You've come on, you know, you've had your little idea about what you're going to do and you come on. <laughs> and, and, it, and it's like, we don't care about your shitty idea. We don't, we don't care. Like, and it was very much about coming on and being present. And, okay. Um, in like a whose line is it anyway kind of situation? Like so that was, the, that was the weird thing. Like pretty much all you do is you get up with two people at a time. Yeah. And it's like, okay, maybe he'll make up some scenario like the, the lines at the circus are sick tonight. And so you guys have to do the whole show. You've got 50 minutes to fool, but this is like your, your moment. This is your dream. Wow. Sort of as, as idiots, you know? And so everyone has a turn of like going up behind backstage. He turns on a bit of music. You come out, music goes off and you just, you, it's impro. Really, you're not, mm. you haven't prepared anything. So that um, sort of adds another layer of difficulty and working with somebody who you haven't done anything with. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I've probably explained it as well as um, some people might. But Buffon is really interesting because Buffon is like a bit more about... I re- resonated more with me because of being a maker. Yeah. And Buffon is a bit more about using comedy to sort of disarm the audience mm. and entertain them mm. and then having some other idea or, or thing that you want to punch them in the guts. Like with. an agenda. Yeah, an agenda. or, yeah. or your, It's often another way of talking about it is black comedy or satire. It's like, yeah. so dark comedy is like, um, it's it's got this other, yeah, agenda or... Um, you're saying something. Is that shows like, like a lot of the British shows, like Blackadder or Yes Prime Minister or these kind of like maybe you see the bumblingness of the elite, but it's yeah yeah it's, it's critiquing yeah. but yeah. hilarious yeah kind of yeah um, and there's a sort of knowingness of the performer. You can see the performer is taking on yeah. something. Yeah, so you might this grotesque character yeah but then you sort of there's a bit of a wink or a nod to the audience yeah not literally but something that shows um the audience that um you know there's there's a few things going on whereas with with clown it's pure it's Mm. very pure it's just like this is an idiot (laughs) in front of you Mm -hmm. um somehow being open and what about, do you, I'd be interested to hear about your agenda. If you're doing Buffon, then you simultaneously hold the skill of crafting uh, humour and, um, and idiocy, but then you have to hold your agenda and try and work out how to deliver it, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, where does the agenda come from? This uh, or what is your agenda across your artistic Me, practice? Oh. Well, well, I guess it's a tricky one because I haven't really gone on directly to employ Buffon or Clown in my work. Like okay. I have a little bit maybe with the stuff with James, the small town stuff. Yeah. Um, and, um, but I think that idea of an agenda or, or, or wanting or work being about something, um, mostly I don't 
make I, I try to avoid that mm. yeah I really try to avoid making work about stuff um, or, or coming from a place where I want to make this about this mm. I, I did that early on and it's kind of great for like having ideas but I find would always find it difficult getting into the practical space of making a work and kind of having all this baggage of of yeah. your shitty idea <laughs> um, yeah but but that said um uh i don't know with the small town stuff with james like the manhood stuff it wasn't like oh let's make a show that critiques manhood and masculinity it was more like um I forget even how we started going down that route, but it was just looking at, I think it was looking at lots of self-help stuff and I don't know, some of the just stuff online and images of like, I I think we felt like it it was more finding the humor in the self-help industry as a whole. And then I think hitting upon Uh, stuff about, you know, how to be a man or, or, or like, or men's groups or or different things that we kind of could see the flaws in and could have a lot of fun kind of lampooning. Um, but then as you do it, kind of being aware, well, the main thing we were trying to do was be funny and find stuff that we thought was funny, mm-hmm. no instruments. Being aware as you do it. Um, like the funny thing I thought with the five steps to manhood was like a lot of the things, the steps were like, presented as really silly things but we always found the stuff that seemed to resonate and was the funniest was stuff that actually kind of made sense so in a way so like our characters were way over the top and and ridiculous and idiots um and the way we were presenting these ideas was just totally like who are these yeah just fucking dickheads (laughs) but then when you sort of thought about it it was like well actually this isn't a bad thing. What we're suggesting you do here yeah. is actually not that bad a suggestion. So, for instance, there was like, I think step three was like, you should cry three times a day. <laughs> and it was like looking at techniques, physical yeah. techniques to, in, you know, get yourself into a crying state. Yes. You know, for release and to release stress and blah, blah, blah. Right. And the way I presented it was absurd. But when you then walk away and think about that, you go, that's actually not a, like that. That could be a valid thing to do. Like, I wish I cried more often than I do. Like, because you know, you're sad and you don't cry, or you don't no, get sad. No, because whenever I do actually find for some reason I'm crying, it just feels so good. Like, it at feels the end like of such a relief. Fast and Furious Seven, where they <laughs> drive in different forks in a road. Um, I can't see. I've seen that. Oh, okay. Maybe, sorry, but uh, yeah, whatever works for you. Yeah. Well, you know, like Paul Walker, he died in a car crash, but That's the right. movie hadn't been finished, mate. Right. And so they finished it with his brother. Yeah. And then at the end, Vin Diesel and Paul Walker, like they're driving, you know, giving their like hashtag no homo, but really lots of love eye contact, like through the window of each other's car. Yeah. And yeah. they're driving down this highway, and then it just the road forks off. And then Paul Walker goes off, like, obviously to heaven. Wow. And there's this song playing that's become quite famous about how we'll always have family in the future and stuff like that. And I think, like, I think a lot of bros really found their moment. Well, that's great that that they could be given that opportunity, but... The other one for me was that um, 
film about the emotions, Inside Out. Oh, yeah, I didn't see that either. That's Amy Poehler voicing... That's like an animation, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because there's this point where this um, girl who's a protagonist, she, like, it's just coming of age, classic, but you see inside, you see all of her... uh, personality structures of childhood having to break down so that new ones can be built for her to become... Yeah, that's heartbreaking, isn't it? Basically, yeah, because they've all been embodied Mm. into characters and people. You see, it somehow reminds you of, like, all the versions of you that died as well, Mm. I think. Yeah, wow. But so, no agenda then, apart from being funny. Oh, in that work... It was mainly just trying to be funny. Like, okay. we're very influenced by Tim and Eric. Like, have you ever seen their stuff? No, tell me about Tim and Eric. Oh, they're like, I guess you'd call them alternative comedy, anti-comedy. They're like, uh, they're on that channel Adult Swim. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they, you would have seen Dr. Steve Brule. I think I've seen snippets. And, and, and that's from Tim and Eric. And I love Tim Heidecker, who's the Tim in that. Like he's gone on to do all this other stuff. Like mm-hmm. um, it's just created this whole universe, basically, online of different shows that sort of crossover. And I just love that—the sort of that ironic, kind of absurd humor. But um, anyway, so the main thing we were trying to be with Five Steps to Manhood was funny. We we're just trying to make something really silly and funny. Yeah. Um, uh, but like I was saying, like a lot of those sort of steps. <laughs> Well, like, you'd, you'd stand back from it and go, that's actually, there's actually something in that. Like, there's a, that's actually not bad advice. That's not a bad thing, you know? Like, that's mm-hmm. not such a stupid but idea. But it's because it's self-help that it feels... Because uh, you would have taken things like this whole format, this structure. Yes, of, yeah. And I've the been format to seminars is tacky. like that, The actually. format is tacky. The sort of... The authoritative the, voice. The suits is, don't fit very well. <laughs> yeah. The sort of expert, the air of the expert uh, feels questionable often in those yeah. things. And, and it's just always problematic when you've got a group of, even if the person's quite good at what they do. And yeah. like I say, well, saying, actually imparting stuff that's got reason in it. Yeah. It's always a problematic uh, dynamic to have. Yeah. I noticed that the, like, being trained in performance in whatever version that is, but like having to hold a character or, or uh, being exposed or having friends who are very, very eloquent is going to these kind of seminars about options trading or whatever. Mm. It somehow inoculated me against being able to believe people that just couldn't deliver as well as my mates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, because somehow you become... I became very... Uh, not allergic is the wrong word. Sensitive, sensitive to catchphrases, yeah. which you can see at the every time that a, a person is exhausted at the end of a, a run or a football match or whatever, and they get instantly interviewed. <laughs> and there's just cat, people don't talk in words; they talk in catchphrases <laughs> about like giving it all and thanking yeah. the boys and all yeah. this sort of shit. Yeah, and then you hear, yeah. Yeah, the cliches and the catchphrases. and I think people think in catchphrases as well. Somehow we think... Well, it's, and it's when you hear in those seminars and stuff when someone 
says the same thing for like the like the same sentence like for the fourth time or something. It's, yeah, right. It does start to feel like you know, the cracks are showing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I thought I thought the idea of crying once a day is yeah. like if you that is actually a good idea. It's like the opposite of. No, f- no, masturbate November or whatever. No fat November. <laughs> Maybe where yeah. you, you've got to get the fluids out in another direction. Um, but uh, yeah, what was the other one? The other one was like the dad's one where we brought our fake dads up on stage. <laughs> was like write a note to your dad, telling him about all the stuff that you know. No, thinking of it was. So it was very convoluted, the explanation. So, that's, the so, so that was what where the humour was. Yeah. And, but basically it was like, imagine your dad has passed away, if he hasn't already, but ima- imagine he's passed away and think about all the things that you wish you'd said to him. But we sort of go into detail, like this scenario like of that happening. And, and then write down a piece of paper, like a poem or a song or, or that sort of expresses all the stuff that you wish you'd said. And then just sort of tuck it away in the sock drawer or, you know, just forget it's there. And then, you know, one day, just maybe a few weeks later, sort of set a timer for yourself, a little reminder. And then go, oh, yeah, that exercise I did. Um, Oh, that's right. My dad hasn't passed away. But I've got this wonderful document that I can now share with him. And so then we bring someone from the audience who sort of played our dad. And mine was like this ridiculous sort of almost techno rock song, which was just like repeating you know, it was sort of slightly homoerotic. And then James had this really poetic ballad and it was so ridiculous. But at the heart of that, it's like, that's, that's not a, it's actually not suggesting, what it's suggesting is not a bad idea. It's like, yeah, you should actually take the time to speak to, you know, your loved one, your, your mm. father or your mother, like about what they mean to you. Like there's something in that, mm. but we weren't approaching that material like let's do something that points to this as being a good thing to do. We were just looking to make something funny. And did you do the exercises? No, I haven't done that. Okay. And is your son? Did he come and see the show? Has he written you a rock? I think he saw that rock rap. No, he, ha- he hasn't. I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> He's got nothing to say to you. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's time to bring out the the five step program. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that we should talk about the block? Oh, the block, maybe. <laughs> um, I don't know that much about the block, actually. Like, But I mentioned to you the other day when you talked about doing this. I, I, yeah, oh, we can talk about my block theory. But it's not... Then I was like, oh, it's not quite a theory yet. But I don't know. It's, it's pretty big. It's going to go for... Like, this could take us... A while. How long is a while? I don't know. Just it. It's this. Actually, it kind of goes back to what we're talking about near the start about funding and art and the role of arts in this country more broadly. Right. Which I guess. Do you mean for building um, nationalistic sentiment? Because it's my understanding that that's when I've toured to say perform a dance show in South Korea. Yeah. Is because during that period, South Korea wanted to let the world know and to let its own people know that it was its own nation, had its own culture, and so they threw money at arts. 
Exactly. Exactly. And that that's currently happening in Taiwan. They're throwing that right? money. Yeah. So to me, that last I mentioned Keating before. To me, yeah. that the last time that happened was when Keating was prime minister. Um, sort of, you know, through the eighties, he was treasurer, and the focus for Labor was mostly uh, kickstarting the Australian economy and opening the economy up to the world. Yeah. And then once that had sort of most of that work had been done. By the time he became prime minister, his focus shifted to a sort of cultural vision right. for the nation or a vision for who this, the country was and where it was. Like the big part of that was a shift towards Asia and to going, um, we are part of Asia. We're yes. not part of this Commonwealth, you know, um, of this M- British empire. Like we're part of Asia and we should be shifting our attention to that. And as we do that, we should be cleaning stuff up in our own backyard so that we can look like, you know, we can be almost presentable to the to this region, to these other countries, and we can say, look, this is us. We're Australia. Um, yeah, we're a republic. We don't have this queen as our monarch. Uh, yeah, we don't have this Union Jack, this mm-hmm. little thing in our flag that we're waving around. Mm-hmm. Um, we we have sort of done a lot of work to heal some of the injustices of the past with our indigenous people. Um, you know, we've like, this is what that he was, was working mission. towards, you know, yeah. is like acknowledging, you know, the, the Redfern speech and, and, and Mabo and native titles, like acknowledging. Yeah. Was he the one that said no great country has another country's flag on their flag? Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that was him. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. So, so he had these, this agenda that was about looking at who we were. Now that we'd sort of brought our economy out of the dark ages and internationalized our economy, mm-hmm. it was like, now let's look at how we internationalize ourselves. Who are we? Like, uh, you know, and that was partly looking at, um, you know, uh, reconciliation and, um, and healing some of those wounds from the past or, mm-hmm. or starting to, mm-hmm. and then also looking at like becoming a republic becoming our own place. And then part, part of that was realizing the importance of the arts in understanding who you are. Mm. Um, and as a nation, using the arts and culture to sort of understand who we are as a nation. And the thing like I find fascinating about Keating as an individual is he understood that relationship to art on a personal level? Because mm. um, he was, his main thing was classical music, and um, he would listen to like the like big symphonies every morning uh, for forty five minutes uh, as a sort of meditation or to get pumped up and to keep things in perspective. But he actually speaks about like the soul and nourishing the soul and how you need to have an inner life. And art allows you to, art can speak to that inner life. Mm-hmm. So he's not just sort of saying art's cool because he wants to be in with the cool kids. He does, like, there's probably a bit of that, but yeah, he I mean, actually, art, he, art is cool. He, 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 but, but I mean, I mean, there's probably a bit of him wanting to be in with that crowd or something or recognized by that crowd, but he genuinely has articulated right. what the arts can do for a person. And so he wanted that the arts to do that for a country mm. as this country started to be something and, and, and reckon with what it could be and, and look out with the world 
So that was all happening from like 91, 92 through to when he lost to Howard in 96. He had this big agenda. Um, that was all sort of pushing that stuff. Um, and, and maybe it was it got a bit too much for people. And Labor had been in for a long time. So then we got Howard. And Howard just basically took us back to the 1950s, you know. Um, he then had Hanson, Paul and Hanson surface not long after that, which is we're still grappling with to this day. Yeah. Um, you had the Republic vote, the vote, the referendum on the Republic in 99, which went no, um, mostly because John Howard was not behind the Republic. He made, he played a sort of game about the question and what was being voted for. But if he'd wanted a Republic, if the Prime Minister wanted a Republic, then it would have been a yes. But so that got voted down in 99. Then you got the Olympics in 2000, mm. which, sorry to go on about Keating, but I have been a bit obsessed about them lately. But he, he wrote in one of his speeches uh, since he left politics that leaving the closing ceremony of the Olympic Games, he wondered if it was the beginning of a great new chapter in Australian life or the end of one. Ooh. And since he's come back to reflect and go, it was clearly the end of one. Ooh. Because that whole push for a nation sort of developing its sense of itself and the role the arts played in that, mm. you can see how directly that sort of momentum carried through the early Howard years towards the Olympics. When you think of all the stuff that was happening arts-wise around the Olympics, yeah. there was yeah. even an arts program around the Olympics. you got these big companies doing these big outdoor shows. Yeah. Um, that was cool. And there's a lot, lot going on. Um, as we, with the Olympics, we literally were as a country showing ourselves to the world. Yeah. Um, and then isn't that when, like, in the years after that, suddenly people were like, oh, Australia is where we can make a bit of money. And then Sydney property skyrocketed from that point, my understanding. Um, there's like a revealing effect of the. Poss possibly that's part of it. Because um, there was a lack of national identity, then there could things could easily be bought and negotiated. Was yeah, maybe maybe that's true. Uh, I haven't thought about and that. Business so much. practices because it could easily just be supplanted from America. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know so much about that. No, I, I also. Mean, I mean, I think what's interesting. Nice. Sorry to continue. Is like then two thousand one. Yeah. A year after the Olympics, um, Tampa happens. Oh yeah. Okay, and Howard was behind in the polls mm. and he manipulated that um, event to turn refugees into a political issue. Into like it, an, an it, invading... It, it hadn't been a political issue for, for 20 years. Like, it's just, we, we you know, we... It wasn't on the political agenda. It wasn't talked about in the media. Like, it's something... Um, he turned it into that right. in 2001. Kind of on the back of the stuff Hanson, Point Hanson in, like, 98, whenever it was, 97, sort of unleashed this bit of, uh, oh, yeah, that's right, that's still yeah, there. Right. Like, xenophobia, basically. Mm. He kind of capitalised on that in a lot, lots of... Or, or he let it happen, at least. Okay. And then with Tampa, he totally capitalised on it. And then, to this day, that's, that's remained this terrible political issue 
where we've turned into a country that locks people up for years on end mm. in basically concentration camp mm. type scenario. Uh, and we still have the flag with the Union Jack and mm. we, we've still got the Queen mm. and we've still got people walking on Uluru because... <laughs> Wasn't know, that last gonna, week? Exactly. They closed it? They, yeah. they closed it, but... They, they closed it, but did you see the, like, the stampede? Like There was a stampede. You know, we've still got that... I don't know, like... So that's, that's 20 years since the Olympics, pretty much. And, um, okay, so The Block premieres in 2003, the TV show, The Block. Right. And then I feel like that... What was building there as a sort of... 2003? Yes, yeah. It had a break. I think it went 2003, 2004, okay. then it had a break. Like, I've Nikki... never actually watched The Block. I've seen bits of The Block on that show, Gogglebox. <laughs> That's how I keep up with reality TV, but I've never actually watched The Block. It's like a whole episode. I can't. It's like torture because to me that's like Australian what became Australian's number one and you you hinted to it before number one preoccupation mm. apart from perhaps sport and well maybe that's it real estate like we became fucking obsessed with real estate at least in the capital cities and it became about accumulating wealth yeah and that filled this cultural vacuum yeah. where it's like yeah, that's how you sort of express yourself. You go down to Bunnings and you renovate your house and then you sell it for a bit more money than you got it for. Yeah. And um, and real estate became this thing that we obsess over, or a lot of people obsess over anyway. And then it became this wealth tool, mm. you know, investment tool, mm. where we're suddenly in a situation now where um, no one can afford... No, no, no one who hasn't owned a house before can afford to own a house um, or buy a house. And that gets into a whole other can of worms about how I just don't think housing should be an investment. You shouldn't be allowed to invest in housing. Yeah, right. It's, um, the, my understanding is that uh, policies like stamp duty are designed to de-incentivize house flipping. Because to get in and out, you need to pay tens of thousands of yeah. dollars that yeah. you just lose. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then it becomes more about like uh, holding and leasing. You just hold as much property as you can and you lease it out. Which means that if you can't get the lease amount that you want, like when you're renting property out to someone else, then you, and if you're not desperate, then you just, you hold just it let empty. it empty. Yeah. yeah. Which, which seems, that seems like the slight socialist in me, and, and there's not a big socialist because I think it falls into the problems of, um, co there's coordination problems ultimately with socialism, which capitalism seems to work out, not for better, mm. but just does work things out. Like it's weird that now we have a privatised space race going on in the world. Yeah, yeah, that is weird. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but also incredible that that's that we're back to a space race. Well, it's all about balance, isn't it? <laughs> Between socialism and capitalism, <laughs> like the ideal is some happy medium. Yeah. yeah. What do they call it? Social democracy? Do they call that? I don't know. Social capitalism. Well, I think there's, yeah, there's some maybe there's some midpoint about what are you responsible for? Yeah. And 
and how 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 wide does that ripple out? And are you responsible just for your nuclear family mm. and that and the castle that mm. the man occupies and defends? Mm. Um, or are you also responsible for your street or uh, like and the you know the old widowed people who live on there and the children that would ride their bikes down your street? And do you do you pull someone up going too fast down your street not because you have kids but because somebody else does? Things like that. It's like where is the responsibility? Which I bring up because um, the YouTube algorithm, like, quite frequently is trying to feed me these videos, but from um, Jordan Peterson, yeah. and it's like 12 yeah. Rules for Life thing. Yeah. And it kind of smuggles into my thinking the way that you were talking about these ridiculous mm. um, yeah. manhood things about crying once a day. He's got one one line that I... I'm thinking about because I haven't thought about it before, and so that's when I mm. think something's worth thinking about, is when he says that mm, life meaning cannot be found in rights, in like the individual's rights, but it can be found in responsibility, mm. in taking responsibility. And so I'm, I wonder about that in relationship to continuing to pursue a career that is not accumulating, that is not accumulating, mm. while at the same time, like, turning, seeing the problems with people that want to accumulate investment property where, like, it's an investment in a thing that we should, we all need. It's not choice. Yeah. Uh, so there's, like, I want my efforts to accumulate in something, but then I don't think that, those accumulations in like other people's interests on say accumulating wealth should then hold housing to ransom Mm. Um, or I mean there's this is where the capitalism coordination comes in because you you could really hold food to ransom and just keep charging more for it yeah except we have a competition between these two giant supermarket chains that try and make everything cheaper so you'll buy there but then they have a responsibility to shareholders. But also because there's only two of them, it's more expensive than it should be. But then Audi's coming in, right? And Audi's completely privately owned. Yeah, but Audi's way more expensive than it was when it started. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's an opportunity. Is that why? Australia's this, like, regulated oh, no, I, I, opportunity. I just think it's found, I don't know, it's found its way into the market. And right. People go there and use it. So it doesn't seem like it's, like, as much of a cheap option compared right. to what it was when it started. Right. But yeah, there is... Sorry, I interrupted you. Well, perhaps I was on a rant anyway. But I'm thinking about... Responsibility versus rights. Yeah. Or end rights. Yeah. Um, and how to be... How to reconcile these good ideas of being a man but then also the like desire to keep making work and that being a good idea as well as taking responsibility who am i taking responsibility for like who are you taking responsibility for well firstly can you go back to that first like this idea of being a would you say being a good man yeah i agree with that language like i 
I've it's been interesting, like the last I don't know five years, as identity politics has become more prominent in the sort of general discourse, mm. and um, and gender politics and stuff like that. I've never thought of myself growing up as like a man. Um, I've never thought of myself as a woman or anything else either. I've just thought of myself as me, as a person. But, and and so I've found it kind of confronting to be sort of, I don't know, to have to start, not have to, but the the dialogue around gender politics um, and identity politics has made me more aware of, Perhaps that I am a man, that I am heterosexual, <laughs> that I am these things. And, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I just always move through the world not thinking about that at all. Um, I have, I'm a person who does things that I'm interested in and I have relationships with people that I connect with or I'm interested in and have these experiences. I've never really thought along the lines of, of, of gender. Um, but... I'm also aware that maybe that's because I am in the sort of, if I am to like look at what categories I fit into, they line up with the categories of privilege. So in a way, I've never had to think about it. Yeah, I would say I would replace the word privilege with default. Um, Only because I think it's interesting not to think that uh, it's necessarily easy but that you can move through the world without considering it. Yeah. And that's why I would think about default because there are also like um, men who fit all of our, like all of the descriptions for us as well who are having a real shit time. Definitely. But they also are not thinking about any of that shit. So that, anyway, that's what I think about in that. But, But being good or not, yeah. Or like the potential that you have because of the default privilege that you have, that becomes a responsibility. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know why. Two anecdotes. If I'm in a group of people and I'm the biggest person, I assume, like I'm aware that if we are in an altercation, I'll have to be the one. Who brings out that thing from his toolbox? So or I'll be, <laughs> or I'll be the one that gets hit first, or whatever it is. Mm. Like, I'm aware of this. In the same way that a, a teacher taking kids across the road on a school excursion is like, okay, I'm responsible. Responsible, responsible yeah. Um, not, but that's not chosen or hierarchical. That's like by default of your body mass. And then I had this experience the other day, which is maybe useless for us to talk about here, but. Um, I was at a Indonesian restaurant and there was a few other families and then like a guy who I think maybe was a taxi driver, he was eating by himself and then a, a, a two couples that were sitting together having dinner and then myself and my friend at the table of three or four that we were at were the only Caucasian people in the room and there was this general level of uh, noise that everybody had just agreed to, yeah, I guess, that yeah. wasn't interrupting. And then a large group, like six or seven 
people came in who were also Caucasian, who were very rowdy. There seems to be a thing that white people feel like it's okay to be rowdy at Asian food places. Yeah, right. In a way that they would never be at an Italian food place. That's interesting. In my experience, but yeah. that's just because yeah. I frequent Asian yeah, food yeah. places. Yeah. Um, and for some reason, I went over to their table. I was like, hey, guys, you reckon you could be <laughs> not quite so loud? And my friend later was like, what the fuck did you do that, man? I was like, I felt a responsibility. Oh, good on you. Yeah. Uh, because we were, <laughs> for some reason, because of the Caucasian relation. Right. Yeah, which, yeah, maybe that's which true is or like not. Which is like weird. But, yeah. But then I was like, nobody else in this room is going to tell them that they're disrupting. Mm. And also, they're not aware that they're disrupting because they're living like their cultural normative, like, volume. But anyway. also, you'd kind of hope, like, for me, like, what I would hope for in that situation, so if I was in that situation, is that I'd just be annoyed by the noise. Yeah. And I'd feel like I could assert myself to just say, hey, like, there's other people in this restaurant, do you guys mind? bring the volume down yeah um and i probably wouldn't do that because of the fear of the confrontation okay i did do that and yeah. i did get confronted yeah um, but did it was it okay did they sort of take it was that kind of, oh no no they told me that i was being passive aggressive and uh, like that and i was like sorry yeah and then i it's, went back to my table but then they did bring the volume down yeah so it's like yeah. they wanted to assert this but, but then like there was this other thing where like they were irish and Maybe like the Irish have also been pretty shat on by the British for a long time. So I don't know. They're an oppressed people of themselves. Uh, yeah, that's. I mean, <laughs> so it gets very messy. It does. It does. But it does I, get messy. I but, wouldn't uh, have felt the same responsibility for other for non-Caucasian people. You wouldn't have gone if a yeah a group of um, for like a real loud group of like. Um, Vietnamese, yeah, or Vietnamese bikers or whatever came, came in with in. their leather jackets. Or even Vietnamese uni students came in and they were yeah. really noisy yeah. and you felt like this was their space because you were perhaps in a Vietnamese restaurant. You wouldn't. Yeah. No. Nah. But I think what's happened in the past is I've been with my mates who I'm in a break crew and am like the only Caucasian dude in the crew and we've been somewhere and they've educated me that I am not being sensitive to what is the protocol of that space in terms of noise or taking yeah, up space yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I, so I'm aware of how ignorant I was to that. Yes. Um, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't quite so highbrow language. It was like, Matt, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Stop knocking people over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shit yeah. like that. Take your shoes off. <laughs> uh, Tricky yeah. uh, being assertive and not being passive aggressive. Well, really hard. I think that's why I. I think to I, be, I think a lot. Most people avoid confrontation and conflict, and and it's. But sometimes, it's something I'm really aware of in myself that there are times when I should actually say something. Say something, and often it's about really stupid shit. That's just stuff that annoys me. It's not even about like feeling like you have a responsibility to another group of people like you had in that situation. Oh, but, but it didn't. But how do, how do you, yeah, how yeah. do you be like assertive without coming across as passive aggressive? I think that's, very, uh, that's such a I mean, you could just line. be aggressive aggressive. I know. You, but I yeah. don't want to do that. Well, that's, again, well, then there's another question. Is passive aggressive necessarily negative? I think... Is it that it feels it's not true? I would I would hope that there's a version of confrontation which needs no aggression. That you confront 
with interaction, mm. but that there is no ill, ill intent or ill desire. But I think passive aggressiveness sometimes comes across that way because you're afraid of, uh, you're actually just afraid of causing a conflict. Like that's how I feel. Like if, yeah, if right. I get read as passive aggressive, does that I, happen or often? If I, or no, if I feel myself, if I feel like what I'm doing is passive aggressive, right. it doesn't happen that often because I usually avoid the conflict. <laughs> but, but if I, but, but I feel like if if I feel myself being passive aggressive, uh-huh. I feel it comes from a place of being afraid that to make contact. You're go- no, being afraid that you're going to offend or you're going to cause conflict, uh-huh. and you're just trying to be nice. You're trying mm-hmm. to like. Say hey, polite about polite. Your con- just trying to say, look, there's. I was wondering if blah blah blah. Yeah, and I definitely think, of course, that's possible to do that without being passive aggressive. But I, f- I find that sometimes that comes from. Clearly, I'd like you to like. Okay, to give an example, yes. um, my neighbor's swimming pool has this pump that comes on. Like, oh, okay, it's really loud. It's loud. So this is an innocuous example, <laughs> but to <laughs> give. Uh, it comes, it comes on. It's really loud, and it would come on at like five in the morning and oh. be right next to Les's bedroom, and he wouldn't wake up. But I used to be like, "Oh, that can't be. I'd rather it didn't come on while he's still asleep, you know." And he's like, "Yeah, blah, 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 like. yeah, yeah." And for so long, <laughs> I thought about this, but didn't like because we don't we get on with our neighbors, but on that side, but we yeah. don't have that much to do with them. We don't cross over that much, so okay. it would take me actually to go go to over, initiate. blah blah blah. Yeah. And I played that out in my head so much. It was ridiculous, you know? Like, could you just, like, make it go a bit later? Uh, you know? And, and and in the end, Claire happened to, like, see him about something else, and they just happened to strike a conversation, and he was worried about something else being noisy. And she was like, oh, no, that's fine. Although Matt has wondered about if the pump could come on a bit later. And, you know... It worked itself out because they had this chance interaction, I suppose. Mm. But, yeah, I'm really struck by... I don't feel like I'm a very neurotic person, but something <laughs> like that is really, like... It was bugging me for so long. Yeah. And I couldn't bring myself to, like, go and do something about it. And I don't know. I feel... And, and that was partly because... I didn't want to, I don't know, I didn't want to, like, I'm too polite or something. I think it's, yeah, it's the avoiding conflict thing, hmm. which ties into a politeness. Which I mean, it's nice to live in a society <sighs> that is, again, that is averse to conflict. If, if everyone... If everyone was, was real comfortable zone, with conflict that might all the time. work out. Yeah, but I think the, the truth is you do have a responsibility to... To speak up. To speak up, even if it's something like the pool filter, to let people know what you actually feel or think. Like, yes, okay. it does... It, avoiding conflict can lead to dishonesty. Neuroticism, it sounds like, and as dis- well. And dishonesty. Yeah, right. Because people... You're not always letting people know where they stand with you or what they or what you think. Mm. But... um. But it shouldn't even be the idea of it shouldn't even that idea of avoiding conflict, like you're saying, mm. going and talking to somebody about something that you might like them to do different like is not necessarily conflict. It shouldn't be, but it feels like it mm. is. Yeah. 
yeah. Anyway, weird, weird that we're like sharing space and time with people and it's like, and that that annoys us and that annoys them and then who says what and who gets to say what. And, and how often like just actually talking and a little bit of time mm. of hanging out or talking mm. can totally resolve all of any any of the problems that are there. Hopefully, yeah. You got another work coming up, mate? Um, are you not product? You're not focused on Yeah, product? I'm doing this thing with Nitin and Malcolm. That's, and I feel like that's, that's like going to brew. That's practice, but I feel like that's going to brew into something. Um, feels good. Uh, don't know what it would... Like, one of the things at the moment is looking around at where you do stuff too. Where do you put stuff on it? Because... Because all the theatres have been turned into apartments. Well, I don't know. If, yeah, maybe they have. It just seems like there's not as much of a scene uh, happening for well, performance in particular. How does a scene happen, though? Well, that's right. You kind of it does have to be. They do come and go, I mm-hmm. guess. And um, and you uh, I've thought about this in terms of responsibility, like a lamented a bit over the last five years at the sort of or longer of the sort of where the performance contemporary performance scene in Sydney and that community has sort of gone or you know dispersed and like um, you know the old performance space at Cleveland Street moving to Carriage Works that's like more than ten years ago now almost yeah I did see it so it must have been quite so long and um and that, it feels like that scene has completely changed and diver- dispersed and mm. it's, it's kind of gone, mm. to be honest. Yeah, I think it's and, gone. Um, and so that happens, that's what happens, like new, something new will at some point, I, I expect, emerge or develop. And, but I, in terms of responsibility, like you ask yourself, oh, is, what could I do to like, because like you say, how do scenes happen? What could I do to help foster that or help make that something happen. Um, and you kind of go, oh, maybe we should start a space or blah, blah, blah. But, um, yeah, it's tricky because I don't really want to start a space. I want to make, <laughs> I, no, I don't. I want to make work. I don't want to run space. I want to make, make work. Amen. Um, so, I don't know. It's about looking for different ways to make work. Like, I want to do... There's a lot I want to do, actually, with the small town stuff just we never get around to it but um that's a bit more in video land and internet land Mm. just because it's a way to have an outcome that doesn't cost much money and can also exist in a place where people can find it when they want to find it Mm -hmm. you know as opposed to the old thing of doing a show and i think Pavlov and Kelly in that podcast you did with OK Radio talking about the like boxes of costumes in there mm. that's in the basement like that's all you're left with which is the beauty of it but also the the um, the hard thing about it too I would liken it though to to food like, you can eat and not be hungry but that doesn't mean you're nourished and nourishment takes time mm. and or good, or good food 
which takes time. Mm. It, like it either takes time to source and prepare or it takes time to earn the money to afford it or yep. it takes the luck of being educated about nutrition, mm-hmm. which a lot of people have one or two pillars missing and do okay and some people have all the pillars missing. Mm. And uh, But if we're talking about like somebody to announce the death of the scene, how a doctor announces like a time of death of a patient. That was like a headline early this year, late last year. Oh yeah. Sydney cultural desert was like the front page of a newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) And then I thought, well, that's the announcement. Well, yeah, you've got to, I mean, when you think about the lockout laws and the music scene on top of like the community that I'm talking about, it's like, yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty dire. So, and, and relating back to what we're talking about with real estate, yeah, and the block, yeah, and, <laughs> um, yeah, and where people's attention is, uh, and sort of the social uh, agenda mm. on the sort of the national social agenda or moral compass, if you like, and just. How, how we're all I mean economically we've been great for 25 years like this whole you hear that all the time anyway and yeah. how we're due for a recession and blah 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 but there's been this sustained period of of, uh, of growth and haven't had the recession since the early 90s and yeah my cynicism and, says that and, a lot but, of but that with all sorry with all that yeah what an opportunity yeah <laughs> yeah you know, like that's that's what gets me true. is like True, true. What an opportunity we've had yeah. to do great fucking yeah. things and become an amazing fucking place. Yeah. And we, that economic prosperity is that little cycle of 25 years is coming to an end. Mm. You know, you can see the government at the moment just trying to prop us like they're propping this thing up. We don't want the house prices to crash again. They're coming back up a little bit. Like, you know, we're going to bring interest rates down. They're just, you know, everyone's just trying to like, on an economic sense and political sense, they're just balancing this yeah. thing that's kind of does need to drop. Um, so we've had this sustained period, this great economic period, nation-wise anyway, and just the things that have been done yeah, culturally right. and, um, uh, and and look, that's not even mentioning you know, climate change as this other problem that we're going to have to deal with, but it's just like, wow, what a, what a squandered... What a squandered opportunity. Like, what What were we doing? I think we were privatising. A lot of my understanding is that countries that have done what you're talking about, which has seen the opportunity that they have and that it, how, how fragile it is. Mm. Like, Norway is just swimming in mm. oil, but it's publicly owned. Mm. And that's why, they, that's why they're such a rich country that has, like... A, a lot of public housing, a lot of social funding. Great education system. Yeah. You know, education system, man, it's, it's fucked. Like, like Les is in high school at the moment and, you know, he's got some good teachers and stuff, but like he's just at the local public school, but the resources are just mm-hmm. completely, you know, flimsy. and. Which is weird, eh, because we're not a poor country. We're not a poor country, but we treat that like it doesn't matter 
Mm. Or the people that care send their kids, save up money and send their kids to private schools. And yeah, the fact that we don't have a, a you know, world leading education system. Um, considering our wealth mm. is is just mind-boggling. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> this is why Papa and Kelly were like, nah, let's stop making OK Radio. Because you get to this point. Because you get to this point where you're like, uh, yeah, I don't the feel, despair. Yeah. I don't feel nihilistic, though, because you said they get to this nihilistic place. And I don't, I don't feel nihilistic because I care. Like, I, I can see... I feel like something's being squandered. Yes. And I feel like that matters. Yes. You know, and that things could have been better and they can be better as well. I'm not, like... I think we're going to get giving, a second chance. I'm just not, I'm not just giving up, like... And because I, I feel nihilism is where you kind of get to a point where you, where nothing matters, where nothing matters, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's where, where, this they, is true. where you where you don't really see meaning in any, anything, mm. and and um, then you need to take responsibility so you get your meaning back. Yeah, maybe. It's sounding very Jordan Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what the algorithm does to us, mate. It radicalizes. I've got an EP that I want to put out soon that is all snippets from... It's called That that Month Where YouTube Tried to Radicalise Me. Right. And it's like it starts with nutrition, then it goes to, like, health and well-being, and then it goes to Peterson, and then it goes the intellectual to... Intellectual dark web. Into, like, Ben Shapiro, I think his name. Oh, which, that guy's fucking terrible. Fuck, Dave. But then, like, I started seeing YouTube have this... Like I guess completely automated algorithmic agenda in what it, where it was trying to lead me, and so I just took out all the snippets and wow. made an album with it. That's great. Because what do they say? Build a strong foundation with the bricks that others throw at you. Mm. <laughs> and then yes. cancelled my subscription and then put a, a blocker on it. On YouTube. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Because what, what does that mean that you don't? Use it just means, YouTube, or it doesn't send you stuff. It, no, it doesn't send me stuff. It doesn't try and uh, uh, like. I still have to upload shit to it, right? Because we're still in this production. Yeah, so you still use it, but, but you've got a bit more control over what it's sending you. Yeah, I don't know. It send me stuff. Anything, yeah. Yeah. Um, have you seen this guy, Friendly Geordies? No. On YouTube. Tell me about Friendly Geordies. Oh, check it out. Okay. Just check it out. It's like he's like a comedian. Australian, he'd be 30 or something, but very political. Mm -hmm. Like, some of his stuff's a bit, like, yeah, maybe a bit on the nose, but politically, he's he's bang on. Right. And, and Australian politics, mostly. And what's exciting about someone like him is he's got quite a following. Like, his regular videos get maybe 150,000. Um and he'll do things like recaps of The Bachelor or something where he'll lay into like, oh. to, to get a crowd. But um, yeah, right. I but feel like maybe you've probably I've seen, seen him. Yeah. You've probably seen him. But he does all this political stuff, which is very uh, coming from the left. But um, well, he's pretty much Labor actually. But um, but he's re he really reads stuff. He really researches stuff. 
And it's great to see someone who's got a following, is very much a silly comedian, but spends a lot of his videos like trying to educate his mm. audience mm -hmm. about what's happening. Um, yeah. The Clive Palmer is a fatty, fatty McFuckhead is, um, is pretty hilarious. Going, like Clive Palmer's suing him for a oh. video in which he called Clive Palmer a fatty McFuckhead. Okay. And his comeback to that is just so great. He's just made this video, like going through the lawyer's letter. Oh, wow. Check it out. Going through the lawyer's letter of all the things that they're suing, taking umbrage with. And in the video, he goes through each one and kind of lays out the case for why that. Why it's is, true. Why it's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah. I get a similar. So, so, so seeing stuff like that really yeah. gives me hope. Same. Anyway, also, Damien Power. Oh, Nick's brother. Nick's brother, yeah, he's a stand up comedian. Yeah. And also really breaks down, like goes from politics to philosophy and back again, but a bit about this, like, for me, it's, it's, it's seated within the working class identity of a nation of people who are living a middle class life. Yeah, right. He doesn't put it like that, but that's how I see it. Mm. And I sent my brother and sister along to see him at Darwin Festival. And apparently he's got this whole skit about his dad um, saying about how he's t he's so busy, he's trying to outrun life all the time. And it's like, I've got shit to do, I can't stay here. And like he's going to win or something. Mm. And then my sister was like, was he talking about our dad? I was right. like, no, 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 there's just a general, there's like a, a generation of men who was like, that's how to be. What, like, you always have to have stuff got to do. shit on, yeah, because yeah. that's your value, right? Because, like, if you yeah, don't have you... family or assets, what are you as a man? What is your it... value to the world? Oh, but, and that also ties back to what you're saying about responsibility before. Yeah, right. It's like, that's how, you know, this idea that you have. Yeah, my dad's a bit like that too. Like, he was a school teacher, but he's just retired the last few years. And, and uh, yeah, he's got to feel like he, he's a bit of, like, Nick feels responsible for everybody around him. Right. Like... He's, everyone is his, you know, he's got to take care of everybody. Right. Um, Did that follow through to you, mate? Do you feel any? I, I don't think so. Like, no. In an artistic sense, you're making sure that people have a soul, like a, <laughs> <laughs> an activated soul or nourished. Um, but yeah, I think, so, so what's Damien, what are you saying about that? Damien Power, oh, just that he... I was just also recommending. We were swapping. Mm. I'm going to watch this guy and you're going to watch this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's all. Um, to, to try and beat that, what the algorithms would have us watch instead. That's true. There's a... It, it started happening. You would probably be more aware of this than me, um, but in maybe like the last five years or so where they were talking to parents about not putting parental locks on their children's internet devices, but having discussions with their children about being discerning about what they see, mm. whether it's true, how it came to them, mm. things like that. Because the, the idea that you can damn the tide has mm. passed. Yes, that's right. And now you seem to have to be this, like... You need tools for navigating it. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. There's, uh, I mean, yeah, I'm watching that documentary about the Cambridge Analytica stuff. Yeah. It's like a whole nother can of worms.
but we had a before, whereas I guess your son hasn't had a before. Like, this is normal. No, I worry about that with, uh, well, even the generation of people who I teach at uni. They've gone through, like, their whole life with the internet and then smartphones came in when they were, like, 12. And uh, right up, like, even Les's, like, I feel like, like, Les is 14. He's got a phone. I feel like we're much better equipped than, say, parents were 10 years ago or even five years ago to, like, like I look at the generation coming through who are sort of my uni students' age, and I just feel like that generation and their parents were completely blindsided, as most of society has been, by this yeah. technology. Yeah. And just not fucking having any idea of yeah. what it means and what it's doing to us and to their children. Uh, I feel we're better, like me and Claire as parents are better equipped because we've had before but we've also had time with the technology and we're aware of what it does to us and etc but we're still fucking in the midst of this complete I don't know period of like sometimes I wonder if we'll look like in 20 years I'll look Mm. back on this period like how when cocaine was first prescripted as a painkiller yeah or even when doctors used to bloodlet people yeah like these, these things that are taken up for a period of time yeah but then it's like oh no actually cocaine is highly addictive and we really shouldn't be giving that to people but are we having that moment now with codeine and other like other oh, prescriptive like, painkillers where we're like oh well it's the highly opioid, opioid, the opioid sorry, yes that's right yeah. that's that's that is like that i guess yeah i just use that analogy with the fun, with phones as well yeah right and and it's like a bored fascination and then, you know, they talk about the dopamine response yeah, when you yeah. sort of go through Facebook or whatever it is, um, and how that there's a really clearly an addictive quality to mm-hmm. how the, how we engage with the technology. Mm-hmm. And if you're a kid growing up with that, mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty scary. It's one thing for an adult to develop, um, you know, a cocaine addiction. It's another one, another for like an eight-year-old or a five-year-old to develop one. And, you know, I'm not comparing cocaine addiction to to phone use, of course not, but I do feel like it's a very, uh, it does pretty powerful things to somebody's mind, young or old. And we haven't, we haven't worked out how to use, how to navigate that as a, culture or society yet it's like very early days of Mm. being like whoa holy shit how cool is that and you just wonder if that's going to evolve or change or we're going to yeah i think it's going to get integrated i think in the same way that we are suspect of the claims of advertisers or that people have become rich based on what we know them for like 50 cent is multi-millionaire from vitamin water investment not from Mm. being a rapper but he's known as a rich and famous rapper Mm. and (laughs) so there's things like that where um you you, yeah you used to think that there was decency and that there was accountability and whether there ever has been that is questionable but there was uh there was a low 
physicality that meant that your agency was more instantly felt. Like you could literally go and talk to the person who screwed you over, whereas that doesn't, that's not necessarily the case with a lot of things anymore because there is no one person anymore. There's no one to hold corporally responsible. Mm. Uh, and then that, yeah, that becomes interesting about algorithms, I think, are the furthering of actually just systems. I'm pretty fascinated. Like, I got a project coming up which is focusing on liquidity, and it's kind of making this um, poetic analogy between bodies of water in nature and humans also as bodies of water, and that they're both things that if you can make them liquid assets, they can be quickly and profitably traded across national borders um, as either workforce or um, assets or... uh, like futures options or whatever on water stock. And that to me is just about um, thinking through systems of incentives because I think we will go where the incentives are, Mm. which is true also for us. Like we we are incentivized in all the things we do and the jobs that we take. Um, Like I... Got, I took a two-hour train to Campbelltown the other day for a five-hour discussion and then a two-hour train back again. Mm. Um, but almost everybody did mm. because no one lives out there Yeah, uh, where the money is being pumped into the venue. So that's, that incentive system is weird, right? Mm. Uh, so I wonder about that. How long... Maybe you can't say on record. I'll just pause. Yes. So... I often hear people, it's like a catchphrase, another catchphrase. If I have to make this, like I have to get paid to dance or whatever, if, I, if this doesn't work out, if art doesn't work out, I'll have to get an office job. Hmm. Or many friends that I have actually, more so in visual arts, they do have an office job hmm. and they are visual artists. And uh, it was never... Never did I think that the office job was the default that you fell back upon. Mm. For me, I thought like being a completely disposable laborer in a truck yard, like loading and unloading shipping containers. Yeah. That was the thing that you fell back on if you didn't make your career work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's why I don't think I could ever be in a job that is an office job even if it still thinks that it's in the arts. Yep. Because I, because I, you know, I even think, because I would probably just get really bitter. Yeah. And I'd be like, why, why you and not me? Yeah. I even think that about being a techie because I did, I studied being a techie. Yeah. And then I thought, oh no, on stage, not backstage. Hmm. Yeah, better to, if you've got to have a job that isn't your practice, it'd be something completely different. I think so, mm. yeah. Yeah. And I do sometimes do photography as an as income. Like the, when, you go, when you can do street view into a shop mm. and look around inside their showroom, whatever, I've done that sort of shit. Mm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I, like, I dress up like what I imagine they think a photographer yeah, looks yeah, yeah, like. Yeah. I even borrowed some of my brother-in-law's clothes and I rock up like with much more equipment than I need. Yeah. 
so that they feel like <laughs> what they're paying is justified. <laughs> that's so funny. It's always a sign to me that I, that's when the photographer has like. Yeah, way too much, like, new-looking equipment. It's yeah. always a bit of a red flag. Because <laughs> I literally need, like, one GoPro-sized device and my phone. Yeah, yeah. But, but no, you want to look professional. I want to look like they... I want to reassure that, them they what need they're that. paying yeah, yeah. me for. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. So it's weird shit like that. But it's the same with everything. Like, when, when my mum goes to quote a landscaping job, like, she puts some lipstick on. Hmm. And puts on like her good hat mm. that is clean, not the one that she actually works in. She mm. like that because there's a reassurance of professionality or something. Mm. Anyway, what's the point of that? The point is that I you prefer to have if you've got to have a job that for money that's not your practice that it's got nothing to do with art. Definitely. Or your arts practice anyway. Yes, but also um, the idea that I could fall back to a office job Hmm. was never a default thought process for me what i thought was that you fall back to being a shit kicker like you're literally sweeping people's floors in a factory i never had that default either of oh if this doesn't work out i'll fall back to being doing office office job i don't think i ever thought about if this doesn't work out i think it's just been an ongoing oh geez maybe i need to get something else just to help pay the rent yeah like so i did after school care for like five years or so that's awesome um like i don't know 2011 to 2014 like while things were going well for me actually i I did that a couple uh, two or three days a week yeah um i used to do i used to come in and teach breakdance to after school care oh you taught my son actually a couple of times yeah at um not after school care but at um jay jay bond yeah, because wow. Anne's used to teach there, and you came in and did some breakdancing, didn't you? Wow, yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, I love that shit. I feel like I live somewhere when I do shit like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I love the... I, I did like uh, the after-school care stuff. Just doesn't do, like doesn't quite pay enough, and it's only like three hours. Because like, I did childcare when I finished high school. That was like my part-time job while I studied, so... Right which was great. That was such a good job, casual job. Like, fuck working in a bar or retail. Like, it was so good that as a... It's because your clients aren't drunk, hey? Well, <laughs> the kids. they're almost... I mean, they, they, <laughs> the behaviour is similar. But, um, oh, it was just such a good right. job to have as your casual job while I went to art school. It was like... Um, I, you know, by the end, I'd, I'd tired of it because, like you start to, like, it takes a lot of patience. Yeah. But on the whole, it was just, I loved it. It was just, you were just, I love kids, and it was just hanging out with kids all day. And, like, the three to five range, especially, or four to five, that pre, preschool, basically, um, is just so much fun. Because they're talking, they've got language, um, and, you know, they're little people. mm um, but they haven't gone to school yet. Like they're just so imaginative and so open and so playful. And that was the job it was just literally like there was some structure to it. Like got to organize the lunches or, you know, bit of order when there's nap time or we've got to pack up the toys now. 
but on the whole, like, and the place I did it at was this place in Asheville, the Infants Home, which is this old Federation style housing and big, big open lawns and great wow. big tree they could climb in. So mostly you were outside. Wow. Just like coming up with crazy kind of made up games with them. It was just the best. And then you went and did that for Welfing Box. <laughs> yeah, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> crazy made up games, except you were the person. Do you think that I find games as structures for improvisation more interesting than just following impulse? Yep. And when you're talking about doing a lot of sport lately, I wonder if there's something in that. Like when I, I'm going to Taiwan next week to teach at some of the universities and what I'm teaching I've titled Instant Choreography. But basically it's, it's structuring games so that it's good enough to watch as a piece. That's mm. the hard part. Isn't it? <laughs> Got any insights? Because <laughs> uh, no, uh, I mean, I just say it's a hard because I think games are inherently, if it's a good game, it's inherently fun compelling. to do and be part of. To then have that as something that's watchable takes a, like yeah, that's another set of um, I don't know. Uh, Criteria? Criteria, yeah, maybe. Like, when you think about sport, mm. and I think when we... I don't often When we think paused, about I it, mentioned I've been You mean like shooting? Like the Riflemen's Association? No, I've been playing... So it started with six aside... No, it started with, like, just casual soccer down. Like, it was weird. It was Choice Magazine had their offices over in Marrickville. Okay. And they would play a lunchtime soccer game. Huh. And then a number of other people would just come and play. Most of them parents of kids at the primary school my son went to right. who either worked from home or didn't have to work that day or in my case I wasn't working because it was between, between projects or whatever and, and so it started with that it was like Ferncourt primary school parents mostly dads I guess and Choice Magazine staff playing soccer at lunchtime and that was like three years ago or something. And then through one of the dads who was playing that, Phil, love Phil, he's got me into all these... He's, he's been my gatekeeper like into all these other opportunities to, like, play, to play sport. Wow. Because I loved sport as a kid, but then, you know, through my 20s, didn't lost the interest and got into art and everything and, and sort of came, have come back to it in more recent years, like... And I just love it as a way to keep fit because compared to jogging or something, it's like you don't have to, like, you just run for two hours and you totally haven't been thinking about the fact that you've been yeah. working or, or running. My sister feels the same about the club. The club? Yeah. yeah. She's like, Fair I, hate, I fucking yeah. hate exercise, but I'll get smashed and dance all night. That, that, yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, Phil's been my gate, gateway to... AFL Nines, which is like the touch version of AFL, which now Claire plays with me as well. We're on a mixed team, wow. um, which is so much fun. And then, and then this more organised six-a-side soccer we started playing. And from there, I got recruited by uh, 11-a-side winter soccer's comp over, over 35, <laughs> which is like over 35 sport. Like I, I discovered that you know I'm 38, so I'm in this period where. I'm like the one of the youngest on yeah. the field, yeah. and so it's this new sort of peak 
like I'm at the peak, like fitness compared to everybody else. So, I mean, my over 35 sport, like prime. Wow. Um, and I can't play soccer that well, but because I, I grew up playing rugby and stuff. But anyway, yeah, lots of participation in sports at the moment. But in terms of what you're saying about games, like, yeah, yeah it's so. Every all the cliches about sport, I think, are kind of true. Like soccer, there's a cliche that football, what is it? Um, football doesn't uh, something like football isn't doesn't build character; it reveals it, or something like that. Oh, um, I'm talking about soccer. Okay, there's something, and, and I think there's that. I think it's totally true. Like when you play with people. Mm. And you know this from making art and, and dance and collaborating. Yeah. You learn so much about somebody when you play a, a game with them mm. um, that you don't learn from talking to them or mm. just hanging out. And you can see the people who just want to shoot all the time. You can see the people who, you know, are always going to pass it. Um, you can see the people who are too scared to shoot. You can see the people who have the skill but don't play for the team. Or we can see the people who just will never give up. Um, like, or, and you can see people handle different things in different ways and, mm. and then maybe, yeah, um, see their character actually develop. But, yeah, it's really, really interesting spending time in that space. How how is ga- how is games for stage different? Um, because you're asking an audience to watch it, mm. so there's a spectator element to it. And I think all of the sports that have big spectatorship, um, there's a there's a relationship there with the audience that's been built up over years, and there's. Uh, or since they played that sport since they when played they were it, little. Yeah, yeah, or since they started watching it when they were little as well. I do think you're right. Like, the participation connection to what they're seeing is a huge part. Like, yeah. you know, most people who watch, I don't know, whatever, the World Cup final. Like Ice a, hockey, a, I don't a know. A lot yeah. of people who are watching that played at it. one point played it and <clears throat> understand what it's like to play. Yeah. Um, but also there's the spectator aspect to it where they probably watched it from an early age oh, too. they also learned how to watch it. They've learned how to watch it and they've had a team that they've right. supported since they were kids and Weird. that is a huge investment. That's, that's this other layer to sport spectatorship, yeah. which is just like, I don't know where else you get that, like that allegiance to a team and the investment in that team and those players so that when you're watching like a match Mm. you not only understand the rules and what's like what's meant to happen um like i think there's two things going on you understand the rules but the great thing about sport as theater is you have no idea what's going to happen you know you have no idea what the result's going to be like or like anything can happen within those parameters. Yeah. It's, it's completely improvised within those rules. And that's just amazing, amazing theatre. But you've also got, as well as that, you've got the investment in the team and the players and, right. and the, the, the relationship that yeah. you bring to it that 
is historic, you know, and it's personal and and it means you're so you care so much. If you go for a team, you care so much about what happens in that game and you don't know what's going to happen. It's like it's very I, I think it's very profound. <laughs> I do. And and as an artist, yeah, and who makes performance and kind of makes stuff that you might call theatre. Like well, yeah, things to be some, spectated. It's some, yeah, it's something that I, I'm really drawn to and really interested in and, like, like, because uh, I think it's theatre and catharsis. Mm. You can't. It, it's it, hard to be. It's hard, hard to match that. Yeah. Hmm. But there are some sports that don't do that, right? Like, I used to compete in ballroom dancing. Oh, wow. And that's, you know, that it sits under the umbrella of the Dance Sport Association. Mm. And I'm not sure if the same catharsis exists there or the same history behind the teams or whatever. And I wonder about more individual sports. I know it can happen in the Tour de France, but maybe it doesn't happen in the, like... Uh, clay shooting, yeah. for example. Yeah. Well, w- well, I guess there's a couple of things going on there. I would say strictly, strictly boring. <laughs> ballroom dancing. Dance so, sports. As soon as you said ballroom dancing, my head has the image of Paul McCurio. Like that was me. I did have an argument with him once about what dancing was for. Yeah. Yeah. And who and who gets to decide? Yeah. What dancing is for and what should be the foundation of our dance vernacular and shit like that, but. It's less important. I think I was just young and argumentative. Whereas now I'm older and um, politely confrontational. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Assertive. You know, in a non-passive-aggressive way. Um, Borum dancing and clay shooting. Firstly, they're this, clearly more niche sports. Right. You Formula know. One, though, not niche, right? Formula One's right up. Like, there's teams you can yeah. follow. There's yeah. a lot of money. Yeah, I don't know. Do people get? Yeah, do they like wear jerseys. And yeah, shit? yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, don't, I don't get car racing. I don't get it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. If you ever get to do it, as a sport, you'll probably get it. Yeah, no, yeah, maybe that's true. I got to do it once. There was a an intervention program in Darwin that was to try and stop teenage boy street racing, basically, and so instead of doing like woodworking mm. at high school in, at, when you're 13, 14, you could do mechanic mm. and you built the race car and mm-hmm. then you'd go down once That's a month awesome. and you would race the race car. That's great. Yeah. And then the, you were the teammate for the rest of everyone else. And you had to get certified, like driving on wet, driving on dirt, things like that. Um, so basically you could just do all your racing, wearing fire retardant gear and a roll cage, mm. all that sort of shit. Mm. I think it worked. Mm. It took less, but, um, I understood when I was doing it. There's a lot of sports I understand when I'm doing. Yeah. But not not to watch. So, so there's a lot of sports you get, get something out of it doing it, but you don't like watching it. Is that what you mean? I think it's because I don't have the time of investment that you're, you're referring to. Like I, yeah. I watch Formula One. I don't know who that guy is. I don't know that yeah. he's just come over yeah. here from this other team that he got out of a... Like, Manny Pacquiao is the perfect situation. It's like most of what people talk about is where he came from. He's a fighter, right? He's a boxer, yeah. Boxer. Yeah. yeah. 
Or maybe he's another type of fighter, but he came from like dirt, dirt poor mm. um, provincial Philippines mm. and is now like owns islands and it's mm. worth millions. But famously not progressive, like uh, homophobic and shit like right. that. Um, so it's weird that the theatre around it then makes it more special. Yep. And I wonder if we can steal some of that. I've, I've wondered that. I mean, uh, funny, the same happens doing... for politics, right? So the same happens for political leaders or what people with notoriety, like the theater around them mm. overtakes their a- actual attributes. And then that's when politics becomes a sport and becomes divisive. And yes. Can be leveraged. Yes. But sorry, I cut you off. Oh, no, I was just thinking about what you're saying about the theatre around, say, sports mm. um, or the media around it even. That helps to build interest and yeah. adds other layers of investment and understanding. Um, I remember having the experience of... Because, yeah, I listened to the episode of this that you did with OK Radio and um, like yesterday while I was cooking cannelloni oh oh man podcasts have got me through god knows how many hours of housework over the the years but um, I used to listen to OK Radio their podcast like all the time when they were doing it do you think we're living up to your like the the nourishment that you got from listening to theirs, do you think we are now living right now, up to oh that? God, I, I have no idea. <laughs> Is anyone going to listen to this? Really? Like, you um, might in in a couple of years. I might. I might. Even I went to do a workshop yesterday with Benji Ra, mm. and she was like, you know, I listened to our podcast last week. Oh wow! From last year. Yeah, yeah. Because I needed to, like, I needed someone to help me know who I was. Wow. And maybe it was my past self that was going to do that. I mean, I'm, now I'm paraphrasing what she said. Sure. But then the beginning of the workshop, she put on a snippet from the podcast where she's talking about um, the m- thing that she cares about the most being community and community building. Wow. And being taking that care and putting in that effort and that work. And then all the other shit falls Around, around that. that. Yeah. But that's a pretty good way to look at things. Mm. Which is why I have so much respect. Mm. But so, may, yeah, maybe it's useless for anyone but your future self. <laughs> or your past self, right? Like maybe this is a crystallizing discussion. I don't know. Oh, it's definitely useful to talk about all this stuff. It's, yeah, if, you know, probably therapeutic <laughs> on one level. Um, but what I was going to say was I saw their show they did at Melbourne Festival years ago, Life and Times, mm. which was like a 10-hour experience um, at the Arts Centre. They cooked hamburgers in the dinner. Like, it was an amazing show and amazing experience and something I've been looking forward to, having known about their work and not seen it. And, and I had the experience of coming back to Sydney the next day and kind of, I think there was different, like, football on the radio or something. I wasn't that interested. Um, and so I put on one of their podcasts, and it wasn't a 
about the show, but they probably talked about the show, like, because that was one of the main things they were doing, touring that show and making episode four or whatever the next one was while they were doing the, the podcast. Um, and it just crossed my mind. It was like, oh, this is nice. This is nice to have been able to, like, see this work. I knew about it already because I'd been listening to their podcast. I sort of had an investment in them as artists before seeing their work. So I brought that to seeing the show. I had to go down to Melbourne to see it. That makes it an event. It's an event anyway because it's 10 hours and it's, you know, kind of got this epic nature to it. And then I come home and I'm driving my car around and I can put on this podcast. Like the next level might be they're doing a, a show like straight after about last night's show. That's what happens with sport is that the next morning oh. I can tune into like whatever yeah. talking about last night's game and what happened and what's happening and what's coming up. And I thought, Oh, that's interesting. Like, you know, obviously you're never going to get that sort of media saturation that like sports has this whole, that is an industry, but it was really great to have, be able to tune in to yeah. them speaking, having just seen their work. Yeah. Um, so maybe there is stuff that we can steal from sports, I don't know, to build up a relationship to, I mean, I think that's the, the, the way that podcasts and the internet and YouTube and stuff can kind of help to build some kind of a scene. Yeah, but it's also the way that it can be undermined, right? With the shutting down of real time and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, that's is that if if huge. if there is no validating print, mm. um, for like whether it's supported. Well, real time did that job, didn't it? It yeah. did that job I'm talking about of like, you know, the 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 sports recap show the next day. Real time yeah. did that yeah. for our respective communities, mm-hmm. and as the physical versions of those communities sort of changed or diminished. I felt it became the scene in a weird way. The publication. Yeah. Yeah. In the sense that it gave, uh, it gave a shape or a form to like, it was a way to hold all these different artists and all these different projects Yep. That sort of happening end up happening all over the place in different ways, maybe at a little festival. Like, like it's quite dispersed, and it is kind of these often isolated things that happen and get lost. It was a way to hold all that together mm. and show that and connect all of us too. Like, you know, I feel like it was integral to uh, actually holding the the broader national scene together. Mm. And in a way, it was the scene, in a way. So, yeah, when that, hearing that was coming to an end, it was like, what did Miranda Wayne say, the, Mary say the other day in that dance sector thing? The patient is dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That well, was, she's yeah. a very wise artist. I thought that was, um, I thought that took honesty. Mm. and um, to, to say that in, in a context like that I also like um, what Julianne Long said that, that 
that, uh, that day as well um, about having taking a perverse, perverse pleasure in living in a place where the arts doesn't have you know inherent values I'm paraphrasing but you know mm. she said like we were talking about how difficult it is and sort of what I've been talking about how the arts we don't have leaders who value the arts and it's not an important part of our national identity blah blah yeah and although they're, but they're talking about living in a place where it's not really valued right kind of enjoying that because Well, she said taking the first pleasure in that because you kind of, in a way, it gives you a bit of freedom. To, yeah. To, to kind of be doing things off to the side or in these smaller contexts that might have ripple effects or... I don't know. I don't know exactly... Thoughts can be what, begun without needing to be... Yeah, finished well, in the same moment. Well, I, I just like what, how, she, how she said that, but yeah. I, I realise as I say it, um, I didn't take away why <laughs> she takes that perverse problem. I kind of know why for me that yeah, yeah, ran yeah. true, but yeah. Yeah, I, but, but I push back against the idea that it's not wholly valued, but I do think that it's not engaged. And I only mean that because of growing up uh, in like a, a family with the history of trucking and running their own truck yards and such that I know how to code switch into that physicality and then into that language uh, to put people at ease basically and uh, to expedite interaction and I went to pick up a a car that I had shipped from Darwin to Brisbane and I went into a truck yard and there was a, a truckie there who was like unloading something and I just spoke to him how I needed to pick up this car and he asked what I was using it for and I said that I was doing a contemporary dance project and this is how I explained the whole thing and he was really keen on it. He was like 60-year-old truckie and I don't think that he would ever go but there was an understanding that these things should exist. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, and I so I wonder if the, actually the value is only it's um it's people being scared of shadows where political leaders know that they can't leverage that value. Yes, and so there's you can let it die a silent death, but I think there's like a there's like a secret value, a secret um, a secret importance that that isn't very profitable to talk about mm. uh, or, or capitalise on, but is understood that it's a special thing that exists on different rules. Mm. That's my understanding. Understood by who, though? Um, understood... Like that secret you're talking about, who knows? Who, 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 who knows who, that who, it's a special who, thing that yeah. operates under different rules? Like my dentist and my taxi driver right. and this truckyard attendant and the person I pay when I fuel up. Like, I think there is an acknowledgement that things are important that I'll never go to, like on yeah. the ever half. Yeah. And, that that, and that whereas sport exists within a sponsorship model, 
and that's how it pays for itself. And business exists within a pay-for-service model, and that's how it funds itself, that nobody expects that I am going to make a living from the thing that I do, but they also don't question that it has value. Mm. They question whether I can continue doing it, but not whether it should exist at all. Yeah. Um. That's just been my experience. Mm. But maybe it's because I'm lucky enough in those few situations to know what I said before, how to code switch and how to be... Like I remember pulling up next to a, a work site once. I was giving Benji a lift and there was a dude, like a dude that you would see on the block mm. in his high-vis, like halfway into a ditch and they were digging something off at carriage works and I asked what he was doing and he asked what we were doing and we had a chat and I kept going. Benji was like, I would never do that. <laughs> I was like, I have that luck, like being accepted by as one of mm. and then being able to smuggle in mm. Mm. yeah yeah I think though like you know you're saying like how there's a appreciation that what you do should happen should exist has some value mm. it's true but maybe not that it should be funded but, but that's what I'm saying is like, and I think that's what Julian was saying is like, like it is not deemed as being important enough mm. to be, to be funded mm. adequately. <laughs> and, but neither, and that's where it takes, that's where it takes leadership. But though. some, but like you said, neither are our schools. Yeah, exactly. And so I don't feel special in that regard. Like I don't feel any kind of righteous in, indignation. Because I also see the neglect of other things that I think are probably even more important. Yeah, and and like I don't want to start speaking for George, <laughs> but just because I raised that quote, yeah. I don't think she was saying that either. I no, think she was just um, sort of acknowledging that um, it's kind of fun to mm. be in a place that isn't like some I don't know art focus, art focus. I don't know. Yeah, right. European sort of cultural um stare like uh, um corporate ladder to climb wonderland where you know there is a rich cultural heritage it's kind of fun to make art in a place where there isn't a rich cultural heritage in the dominant culture yeah 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 uh do you how far back do you how far back does your heritage go that you think about? Oh, not very far. Like a generation or two? When I say the cultural heritage, you mean? Yeah. Like, have you inherited any dances or any poems or oh, like, right. through your ancestry? No. No, same. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Just like some predispositions to diabetes or cancer or whatever. Whatever is the... <laughs> oh, to be fair, my grandma was very musical okay and played the piano and stuff and but no one was like this is our family's tartan keep it going <laughs> no, no definitely not no okay. no um i wonder about that but a lot of my family on my grandma's side i have to say has ended up in some way in the arts mm. or even if they don't do it as their main thing they've gone to quite a high level with say playing the clarinet or like, she probably did have quite an influence when I think that my parents were, like, 
school teacher yeah and sort of social worker um and me and Jack are in uh in the arts and then my other brother Ben has is in the public service but has played in bands all his life it's kind of interesting that I do wonder where that's come from maybe just having the support of parents and feeling like you don't have to worry too much about you know I, I think it's having supportive parents actually mm-hmm. they were quite supportive in terms of just going oh, we, you should just do what is going to make you happy instead of worrying about our, whether we were going to be able to afford a house or whatever mm. and you think that was good advice? Are you going to perpetuate that advice? Um, I think it was a pretty good approach to just go, to not tell us what to do. Yeah. Um, and to kind of, I think there are definitely times when I would have liked maybe a bit more of a push, but um, at the same time, how do you do that And as a parent? And no, they, they totally as parents were like, um, the approach was always, um, you know, supporting anything that, we wanted to do that we felt would um, be fulfilling, I suppose. Mm. Mm. There, was another, there was another question I was going to ask you, and it has escaped me. As we were talking about... Ah. Oh, do you think that getting into these sports teams was that there was room for that in your life and that's why it it appeared? And do you think if there wasn't room for that, if, say, Welping Box got a huge tour and then you got another commission and then you made another work and then, like, you could have been swept up into the industry of productions if there was an industry of productions to be had Um, and then you wouldn't be talking to me about yeah, that's possibly another way that it could go, could have gone. Um, yeah, no, I definitely feel like I, I'm very connected to my local life, if that is a way to put it, my, mm-hmm. where I live, the community I live in, um, the geography of it, even though I work half the time in Wollongong and Campbelltown. <laughs> um, I feel like both having a kid... Yeah. ingrains you in the community because you meet all these other people with kids and they go through school together and everything. And then, yeah, all of these community sporting opportunities. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, has, has connected me to that. And, yeah, if I was busier with having to travel and probably harder to keep those things going. Yeah, definitely feels like uh, a local, a locally connected life. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that the amount of time that you spend making work and being in the creative process is going to increase in the future? Um, I think it probably will. Um, I've definitely gone through a phase of um, 
you know, after Welcome Box, I kept doing stuff mm. like you mentioned the skyscraper thing or these little one-off projects or maybe work that crossed more over into live art and it was really just responding to opportunities that got, you know, people ask you to do something for this and you're like, oh yeah, okay, cool, we'll do something for that. So I, I but I feel like the last three years, I really just went that step away from, from it almost altogether apart from the teaching. Um, but did- partly because of lack of inspiration, I guess. Um, and then during that period, definitely questioning, oh, maybe, maybe that's done. Maybe I don't really need to do that anymore. I don't have the sort of much of a desire to do it. Um, I don't see a great sort of vibrant scene that makes me want to do it. You know, what? Because I think that's a big thing about making work is like you want to make it in relation to other work and so that it's speaking to a context and that doesn't quite feel like it's there for me and and so I definitely have gone through periods in the last few years where I've thought uh, the amount of time I spend making work will diminish and maybe just go away altogether but I think I'm coming out of that period of just basically stopping and um, and realising or remembering what's important about making work for me and how I do what what it I guess the the meaning that I get out of it mm. and that um, while I don't really can't really see in a sort of structured um, linear um, practical way like what the path is forward my feeling my gut my sort of sense is um, I'll spend more time making work in the future mm. Mm. I think you just crystallised for me the question I was trying to ask an hour ago about demand basically and how you know something has value when people aren't asking you for it Mm. <clears throat> and when you if your inspiration tapers off then your need to do something tapers off and nobody's asking you for it then but I think those things feed each other mm. and no different than like when you're when you work out how to deliver a joke and then people laugh and then that makes you want to deliver another mm. one right mm. uh, um, or when you're flirting and it's working, or it's not working and you mm. adjust your tact. So I wonder about that. And I wonder about how how do you think that it is that... Mm, I wonder s- several things. First of all, I agree that the only th- reason I'm interested is to be in dialogue with other makers. I want the the whatever is the work that I make to speak to and in response to the work that I've just seen and mm. then the work that will come. Mm. Not necessarily the artists talking to each other, no, the, the works the work. as yeah. separate products from the people. Yeah. Um, There's a context there that you're putting your work into. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 
that excites me much more than my internal need to produce. Yeah. Uh, which is disheartening if you feel like you're putting something out into a vacuum. Um, but then also you look around for inspiration and that's where it comes from, right? Mm. Like your peers. Mm. Because like you said, the 60-year-olds are out. They got out. Mm. Even some people that I really look up to, Carly Mello or... Um, Adam Sinnott, who were dancers a few years ahead of me in their careers, and they just looked at the future and they were like, oh, nah, mm. and then retrained. Like coal miners, mm. retrain because mm. the industry is going down. Mm. And so I wonder about the futility mm. and the self-importance. Mm. Um, but when you, when you mentioned before about like working out why it's important to you to make stuff, and do you... Have you narrowed that down? Um, I think it's a number of things. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, I think it comes down to the, the pleasure of getting so caught up in a process um, that you know, a process that involves all that problem solving and trying things and yeah, trial and error and but when you're really into it and you really care about it and I don't know where necessarily that care comes from or passion maybe comes from but when you are in that space, it's just so satisfying and mm. it's so pleasurable. And, um, and you're doing that with other people as well. So you form that little family or that little group and the relationships that form through that and the fact that you all go through that process together and then there's the outcome and... Um, I think it, it just feels very like you feel yourself I don't know I think it's a bit about that sharing with the group of people it's a bit about the pleasure of the practice and it's a bit about the expression as well the fact that it's a process you're going through a process of trying to express something mm. of yourself mm. and I think having had time away from doing that because um, recently I had an experience of that with the last uni show I did where it was like the idea and the concept and the approach were like it's as much as I've been into one of those exercises as a you know, since the first one I did. And so it was really great to just get sort of swept up in it. And and having that experience again, having stepped away for a while, I think it's just realising that I don't know any other place, you know, where I can get that same kind of experience. I'm sure there are other places, mm. but for me, that's a way that I can have that sort of little community go through this process that's so full of the unknown and the uncertain and the and just the potential futility as well 
of what you're doing and the absurdity of what you're doing. Uh, yet you can find spaces to do that where it is validated. And, and with a group of people going through that together and the arc of making something, uh, the highs and lows and then the things that work and don't work and just trying to make sense of that. And there's, there is just something genuinely satisfying and pleasurable and meaningful about that, that I don't know where else I could find that or access that. Um, so Yeah, and I guess it's just like, it's an experience, isn't it? It's like any experience, like you can feel yourself learning, any experience you feel yourself learning from, I don't know. Mm. It's almost like it's an experience that I just really like. And, um, and but, you know, in certain doses, you know, in certain doses, like... It's, something, it's an experience that you can get sick of yeah. and get tired of yeah. or you get into the same patterns or you can become, you can start to, yeah, you can get tired and you can become tired in it. And, um, and so like anything, sometimes you've got to walk away from that just to give it a rest and to get different perspective and maybe new inspiration that you bring back to it. Mm. Um, don't know if I've answered your question about what it is because I can't maybe completely pin down what it is. Um, but it is funny kind of acknowledging that it is something that I do, but it's not, it's not all that I do. Mm. Mm. And I doubt it will ever be all that I do because I'll want to go and kick a ball around. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just thinking about the relationship between putting the work in and problem solving with a group of people and then taking that and showing that to other people. Uh, and it not being something like of inherent commercial or uh, practical value. Right. What, what's the word for that? U utility mm. as well. I did wonder this morning if futility was like... Fuck all utility. It yeah, was just yeah. they put the F it, it was related the utility. To yeah, it's true. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. No, I'm just thinking about hobbies that people get into. Like I, I took on this father-son project with my own dad to rebuild an old Mustang. Oh, yeah, you mentioned it in the oh, yeah. OK Radio one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, they were talking about their hogs. The, their, their bikes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, the, and that feels like the thing where we problem solved together we had something yeah. to talk about we yeah. went on a journey but it also needs to be seen by people and because especially because it's left-hand drive when i pull up to the lights and there's no air con it's so mm. but the windows are open almost every set of lights someone wants to have a chat with it's me amazing yeah. yeah and i feel like that's the now the continuation of that project it's lovely yeah. is that it exists into the world I guess if it was, a, it could be turned into a business and you could do like resto mods and sell them on and shit like that. But then that's different, right? Yeah. And so I wonder about this project and its nourishment and its 
when you're talking about being localized and living somewhere and internationality and like this is the longest bow I may have ever drawn, but when re- earlier we were talking about the internationality of uh, accepting the fact that we're part of Asia-Pacific and that that is our yeah. neighbourhood. So what is that? What is an international locality, for example? Mm. Like, how do you... Mm, I have no idea. But I've been working around there, so I feel like I'm working on trying to have an idea. Mm. But I also know that I really like the the wealth that Australia sits upon in relationship to some of the other countries that are in our neighbourhood. And so I'm not socialist enough to be like, let's level a playing field. Mm. And that's only because the system that I see as being flawed is working for me. Yeah. Oh, well, it's good to know your shortcomings. <laughs> <laughs> Um, mate, is there anything else you want to say or any like epiphanies that you've had during processes that you try and remind yourself of or others or, or a mic drop? <laughs> like when Ivy was like, dance is magic. And then just mic dropped and left <laughs> at the sector day. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, that was good. Um, uh, yeah, I don't think so. I think we've covered quite a lot today. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, look, I, I can't think of anything specific. I feel like we could go on and on and on and on. Okay. Um, In the future then? Yeah, maybe another time. Um, did you... Is there anyone that's inspiring you that you want to mention? People that you look out towards? <sighs> Artists or and not anyone, mate. Because um, inspiration is the thing for me. Mm. I think if if I mean that's if not if not that you are inspired towards action in whatever field, like baking or. Mm. Um, don't know what I'm inspired by at the moment. Like I'm. I go through these periods of just being, I guess, obsessed with different things, like in terms of inspiration or curiosity. Like, you know, I mentioned Paul Keating a few times. Like, I went down a wormhole of just reading anything about him. Mm. And he's, like, there's a great book, um, Recollections of a Bleeding Heart, which is his speechwriter, Don Watson, who's gone on to write other books, basically fly on the wall for the four years that he was PM. That's a great read. And then the Kerry O'Brien series, which is sort of Keating's memoir in a way, but through interviews with Kerry O'Brien, which charts the... And, you know, he's he's a bit of an asshole, Keating, and quite kind of not afraid to talk up the role he's played <laughs> in everything that's happened, but just very impressive, though. Very impressive as a figure and... As um, especially as a political figure and as a leader, and I kind of can't help but think what might have been if he'd come to politics a bit later. You know, Trump's seventy something, right? Like Keating was um, 
I think he was treasurer at sort of 38 or 40. Like, he entered politics at 25 and, yeah, he probably left it just in his early 50s and it would be quite interesting if he'd come to it a bit later with slightly... Because I think he's quite brilliant, but with maybe some of the wisdom that he's accumulated later on. So I'd say he's been a bit of an inspiration in a weird way. Like, I don't know if inspiration is the right word, but he's like reading about him has really made me think about some of this bigger picture stuff. Yeah. In terms of Australia, because I don't engage with the idea of Australia very much, you know, and think a lot of artists don't. Like, we're kind of into our own experience and our own work and our own community and so it's made me think a bit more about like what a con- like what Australia is what could be in relation to a lot of the stuff that I guess a lot of the reasons I don't engage with the idea of Australia is I see all these problems with it I see all these shit things about it I see the terrible leadership that we've got at the moment and I see the terrible history that we have mm. and um, the sort of prevailing slightly conservative attitude towards um, just life in general and 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 so I don't engage with it and so reading about him I guess has made me engage with those ideas a bit and that's been maybe not inspirational but I don't know it's, it's piqued my interest it'd be nice if the people in the centre who were considering both sides felt it their place to propose that that might be an approach instead of just the extremists on either end feeling that it's their place to propose that this is the only way yeah well that's the thing I like about him as well Keating is that he um Like, he's definitely to the left of centre, but he did a lot of things that... Like, with the economy, like, he did a lot of things that a Labor government would never have done, like balancing the the needs of the unions with, like, the need for an economy to mm. open up. Mm-hmm. And, and he gets... You know, some people would say some of what he did um, has sort of led to a lot of this sort of... I guess obsession with real estate and stuff like that. Like he introduced negative gearing in the first place, but um, wow. he would say that it should have been taken out by now. Right. Um, it had its time. Yeah. But um, anyway, yeah, I'd say he's been someone I've been trying to learn about. Um, before him, I was really into um, Franklin Roosevelt, hmm. who's, I guess, another... Yeah, leader, politician. Um, who's a fascinating character. And Eleanor Roosevelt, actually, his uh, wife. They were both... Um, yeah, there's a... Have you ever seen any of Ken Burns' documentaries? Mm-hmm. He does them on a lot of American history. Like, he did one on baseball, he did one on jazz, he did one on the Civil War. Recently, he did one on the Vietnam War. It's really good if you're having trouble sleeping because it will kind of send you off to sleep. It's like 
lots of black and white footage or if it's older than that, still the images. Like on iTunes, uh, on iMovie, I mean, they have the Ken Burns effect. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's his. That's named after him because he would, in a lot of his early docos, say on the Civil War, where the only images are, are photos, Wow. he's kind of used that technique of starting like writing on something oh, yeah, yeah, and slowly yeah. as the sort of narrator speaks about uh -huh. something or other, zooming out to reveal and it, the context. You know, and it kind of works um, for when you don't have much footage. Isn't that the idea behind a spotlight and then the flood slowly fading up yeah, on I stage? So. I guess so. Or you've got the reverse too. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he does all these documentaries on American history but the one on the Roosevelt's mm is a really interesting story if you don't know it, just that sort of part of history. The first two episodes are about Teddy Roosevelt, who I don't find as interesting a character. He was sort of president in the sort of 1900s. But then Franklin Roosevelt was like, became president when America was in the midst of the depression. Um, introduced all these sort of social contract type um, policies, the New Deal as it was called. Uh, to get to kickstart the economy, but also just get people employed in lots of public um, works programs, and effectively took America 